Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. Good morning, good morning, good morning. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. So lovely to have you along. Got a great lineup this morning. Ah, we do every morning. We're so lucky. We're so blessed. But remember, you can give me a text at 2057. Email me inbox at realitycheck.radio. Here's what we've got coming up. Dr. Sarah Ferrant. Oh, I'm so interested in this. This is a lady who thinks typical medicine gone a bit wrong. Not against it, but this idea that for every little bit of pain or every little ache, you run off to the doctor, have 10 minutes, get your prescription, run off to the chemist shop and swallow some pills and get better. She thinks that your body with good care, good nutrition, exercise, can take care of itself. And she lives it with her children. You're going to love the story that she's got to say. Oh, my goodness. Then, amongst all the dreary news, a great bright spot from the Free Speech Union. What a win they've had. What a win. There was, I guess, a doctor, someone high up in the health system, who has been for some years, apparently, tweeting up a storm. Great tweets. Along the way, that expressed the opinion that women are women, I mean, I mean, can't swap expressed the opinion that rationing health, uh, according to race, not a good idea. And that maybe if you're overseas and you walk into a pub with a full face tattooed, people might get a fright. Well, turned out that got this uh, Twitter person labelled a racist and a transphobe. The Great Stuff magazine with the editor and journalist decided to do a public service by outing this person and contacting their employer to get them fired or disciplined or whatever. What are you doing about this? Because how can a Maori feel safe with this person working in the health system? How can a transvestite feel safe with this person when they have these views? Well, she contacted the Free Speech Union, emailed all the members, all the members outraged, wrote emails to stuff to the editor to the journalist and said what the heck do you think you're doing and they backed off wasn't a war that was won but it was a great battle we're going to have jonathan ailing telling us a story about that we've got politics explained talking about this period where nothing much is happening i quite like it we've got the mailbag and we're going to draw our winner a winner for the Yates, uh, 12 packets of helium seeds and a nice canvas tote bag. There's three up for grabs. And we're going to go through all the great gardening tips. Oh, you're going to love some of them. My goodness, you are. That's us. Stay tuned. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 20. Five, seven. So get in touch with us now. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, remember, you can give me a text at 2057. You can email me at inbox at radleycheck.radio. Raising healthy kids. What's it take? Hmm. Probably putting them outside the system. At least to some extent. Uh, and to help us understand this, 
Raising Healthy Kids Outside the System, we're joined by Dr. Sarah Ferrant. Have I pronounced Ferrant correctly, Sarah? <laughs> you have. You've done a great job there, Rodney. Uh, most people say Ferrant. Ah, and also um, I should say to listeners that Dr. Sarah has said to me she'd be very comfortable if we had a conversation. So I'm um, as you, as listeners know, I've been sort of agonizing over conversation, interview, what am I doing quite right here? So we're going to have a bit of a conversation, a bit of an interview, but we're going to find out so much. Tell me, how did you find yourself outside the system, outside the health system? What led you there? That's a, that's a big question to unpack. That's an awesome question to start with. So for for me, it went back to I would say at the age of seven, you know, in my in my own life, and I was very much raised in an allopathic approach, and you know, did conventional schooling, and um, but a, an incident happened, and my dad knelt down in front of me, Rodney, and he placed his hand over my heart, and he said, "Sarah, you have all the answers inside of you. All you have to do is ask the question and trust your answer." And that day changed changed my life. And at the age of ten, when I coughed a, a couple, pardon me, coughed a couple of times, and my mum whizzed me up to our medical doctor, who just happened to be my uncle, um, to get something to take something away. I was transported back to that young child at the age of seven, and my dad saying, "You have all the answers. You know, you know, just trust what the question that you ask." And so I um, sat in the car while mum was getting the prescription for amoxicillin fulfilled and I said, what do I want to do? And the answer that came back was rest. So I went home that day, mum popped the, the pill and the glass of water and she slid it across the bench, you know, saying, there you go, darling, this will make you feel better. And I looked at her with certainty, much like my dad did that day that he knelt down in front of me, and I said, no, thanks, I'm going to rest. Oh, my so, goodness. So, yeah, so the, the journey for me has been, if I look back at the lessons that my dad taught me, which was um, ask questions, you have all the answers inside of you, and trust. And it was that life-changing moment for me that if I if I was to actually put all the significant events of my life onto a a chart, graph it in some way, then I would find the pivotal moments was when I lent into trust and just trusted myself. What was your dad like? <laughs> he was a Socratic parent. And what I mean by that is, is Socrates was always about questions, right? So he was very much a, a questioning father. He taught me to ask questions. And boy, I've become very good at asking questions and reading between the lines of things that may not be being said. And he, um, you know, he would ask a question back. So if I said, you know, how are you, dad? He would go, why do you want to know? You know, like it, mm. it was always questions. So um, I feel that I've done that very successfully in raising our kids too, as we've mm. journeyed through our, you know, our life with our kids is just asking them questions. Isn't it funny growing up that your childhood, your parents spend such a lot of effort and time looking after you, and yet your memory of your childhood, there are incidences that stand out so stark 
so strong. And to your parent, it was often just a mundane thing. Yeah. If you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And you're very, I'm very conscious as, as a parent that, you know, you spend hours looking after your kids and caring for their needs. And you know that um, they have, you, you as a, your childhood is sort of distorted reality. And it's often these little things that stand out in your mind of what your dad said or did or your mum said or did. And it becomes hugely significant in your life. And your parent, your dad may not even have remembered it, if you know what I mean. Just another yeah. thing he did. Yeah. Well, How it's, wonderful. It's interesting that you say that because dad was that uh, questioning parent and my mum taught me accountability. So if anything had uh, occurred in my life, she would always say, what role did you play in that? Yes. So there was never a poor you or um, that's unfortunate. It's like, well, what role did you play? So mm. she was always teaching accountability if I look back at, at, at what she used to say and how she used to interact with me and Dad was teaching me questions. But when we when we decided to bring children into the world, so our eldest is now 21, our next is 19, the next is 17, when we, when my husband and I decided to bring kids into the world, we wanted to use dad's lessons of ask questions, trust, and um, listen to the whispers that are inside. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to also add um, about another three things to what we wanted to teach our kids. And the first one was language. We wanted to make sure that our actions and the language that we were using were congruent so that they would see us uh, living in a certain way and congruent to that and that would make it easier for them, given that children, you know, are always watching it, listening for those first few years and then they go into being uh, the observers of your actions. So we wanted to make sure that we were congruent in the words that we were using and how we were living. And then the, the second was was we wanted to home educate and we wanted to home educate because we felt that if we were going to bring kids into the world, that we wanted to be responsible for them. It was no one else's job. And we wanted to be the, the guider of their experiences to put more bows in their quiver of life and not to necessarily take an experience away from them or make that experience bad or worse. And then the next one was uh, health. So how are we going to approach health? So given that myself and my husband don't vaccinate, don't take over-the-counter medications and don't have a medical doctor. We don't do prescribed medications. We wanted to also raise our kids in that particular health approach and chiropractic as well. So for us, chiropractic has always been the mainstay. We have had chiropractic in our life since the 1990s for my husband and I, and we wanted to raise our kids in that health approach too. Given Just stop there, Sarah. I'm sorry to interrupt, listeners. That's okay. Uh, tell us what chiropractic is mm -hmm. and tell us how you and your husband got into chiropractic. Oh, <laughs> that's a good story. Um, so chiropractic is a particular health approach that recognizes that you are a self-healing, self-regulating, self-regenerating and self-maintaining organism that is constantly adapting to the environment. And at the seat of that adaptation is your nerve system. So your nerve system is your master communicating system of your body and any interference to that communication pathway 
is then obviously going to set up states of dishyphen ease within the body um, and eventually to disease if that does not uh, um, if that's communication pathway is not taken care of in some way. Now, in saying that, Rodney, there are three different ways in which you can create that neurological interference within your body. So the first one would be physical. So there's physical challenges, you know, falls out of trees, car accidents, trips. I mean, kids before the age of two have up to 2,000 different falls in their lifetime. You know, that's a major impact to their nerve system. Then there's the the chemical aspect of it. So not only do we have our own internal chemical um, production taking place, but we also have external chemicals that we put into our body or onto our body that alters the communication pathways within. And then we have our emotions. Now we know, you know, through lots of epigenetics now for the last 25 odd years, 30 years even, that that lots of studies have been done in our thoughts and what we think about, we bring about, like that's quite a common statement, but also when we perceive our world in a certain way, that then alters our physiology. And when it alters our physiology, we then create the signs and symptoms within our body to alert us that something is taking place. Mm. So physically, chemically, and emotionally, um, or what we have in our household and on our website as our catch cry is move, eat, think, we wanted to make sure that those three were looked at very closely in our household with this overarching umbrella of trust. Ask mm. questions, trust the whispers that come back. So for us, we've had chiropractic in our life, like I was saying before, since the um, early 1990s. And we don't have a medical doctor. We just have the mainstay of chiropractic. So we get adjusted every Friday morning as our family adjustment day. Our kids have been adjusted since they were minutes old and have been every week for the whole of their lifetime. What's and adjusted it, mean? Um, so an adjustment is the uh, is the art part of chiropractic. So that is what we, um, like a medical doctor, you would go and you would receive a treatment, right? Mm-hmm. In chiropractic, you would go and receive an adjustment. So it's not a manipulation. Whoever wants to get manipulated in life, right? No one does, right? So that's not what chiropractors do. We don't manipulate people. We adjust people. And, you know, we can go into the word nerd part of of what those two mean because they're very stark differences. But suffice to say that um, our kids have been raised in this health approach, this understanding that their nerve system is the master communicating system. And when... When you are adjusted consistently and regularly, then your nerve system is less likely to go to the valleys and to go to the peaks, right? We stay more consistent throughout our life. So you don't drop down or you don't drop up. There's a consistency. There's a balance to what's taking place. You know, our homeostatic mechanism inside our body is, is the balance. So... Um, for for us to, uh, or for our children at least, you know, they have not had an over-the-counter medication at yes. all. What's the, life. what is the adjustment like a meditation, an exercise? Oh, uh, it, it's the introduction of a force into the body. Yes. Um, that then the body then will take that force to the area where it is of concern. So a lot of people call chiropractors back doctors. Right. Yes. So, so, and, and this is where chiropractic is quite misunderstood as well. So, 
the reason why we go to the back is because we have this innate intelligence in the body that decided that the nerve system, especially the central nerve system, which is the which is the brain and the spinal column, is vitally important to a person's ongoing function through their life. So the innate intelligence of the body said, I've got to encase that in bone to make sure that it is well protected. So we would go to the spine because that's the easiest place for a chiropractor to access the nerve system. Okay. So, and, and, and you know, every level of the, the spine, all the nerves that come out, they have different levels that it goes to go. So all, all the, um, you know, if you look at the hierarchy of the body from the nerve system or, a, or a, a, um, a health perspective, you go from systems to organs to tissues to cells to organelles to molecules to atoms, subatomic particles, vibrations, energy, and light. You know, so it's, it's very depth in terms of... Um, uh, accessing the nerve system. So this Friday adjustment day, yeah, would that be what I would understand as a chiropractic treatment? Yes. However, okay. this is yes. where you want to look at the words, Rodney, because Understood. the treatment treat treat means to deal with, mm-hmm. and meant means mind. So if you have a treatment. You are usually, because that's an allopathic terminology, right? It's also mm-hmm. the alternative, you know, where a hundred different other health professions sit that aren't dispensing drugs or medications of any kind, sit in this other bucket called the alternative health approach. So if you are um, going to someone to get something, you're usually provided with a treatment. It's a prescription that they'll write down or they'll give you something, go and buy this over-the-counter drug. But that means that you are going to be dealing with your mind only. So when you consume that, you basically chop yourself off and you've got your mind at the top, your bottom at the bottom, and you've created this illusion that whatever it is that you have is not there anymore. And because health comes from a feeling perspective, because you don't feel it anymore, you deem yourself to be healthy again. Now, Mm. if that was actually the case and medications gave you health, then shouldn't the healthiest people be the ones that are taking the most medications? Mm. And that's not the case, is it? No, 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 it's not, definitely not. So um, just backing up and we'll we'll get through all of this, what led you to, I get, you're thinking outside the system. Mm-hmm. I get that you were growing up a person who thought for yourself, and that's an amazing story at 10, saying, I just need rest. What led you, of all the medicines you could do, alternate and otherwise, to chiropractic in particular? So I was... Uh... Back in about 1972, my parents got a black and white TV. You know, we thought we were rich and my sister and I were finding out where all the little people lived in the back of a TV, right? We had never had one before. We thought, it were, you know, this was fantastic. And there was a late-breaking news report that came on the TV that said, um, uh, sorry, uh, we, mum and dad grabbed Lisa and I, my sister and I, and we went and sat on the couch and we listened to this late breaking news. And it was a surgeon that came off, came on the TV and he asked, uh, he was being asked questions about the brain surgery that he had just performed. And I got off from the, the, the couch that day and said to my dad, I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. 
And, you know, as a parent, dad's like tap, tap on the back. Oh, that's nice, dear. You know, off we go for dinner. And um, and then I got to school, Rodney, and I never lost sight of that vision that I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. And I thought I was going to be a brain surgeon. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to open people up and look inside the human body because I was so um, uh, amazed that this guy could do that and still have someone alive the next day. Like I wanted to see what was inside. And as I was going through my education, my schooling, it was fast becoming, you know, I guess I was fast becoming aware that I probably was not going to go into medicine because I pretty much couldn't read. I I could barely uh, comprehend. Um, and I guess most people at that time would have called me dyslexic, but not you know, it, there was no formal category, I guess, when I was going through my education. I'm currently now 56. So I uh, used to go to this lady called Miss Claire who had a little brown door on the other side of the oval and the class teacher would call me out, you know, like, Sarah, it's time for you to go to Miss Claire. Everyone knew who Miss Claire was. She was the dunces teacher. Mm-hmm. So I'd get my books and I would, as soon as I'm left-handed and as soon as my left foot would touch the oval, I would I'd put my head down and as I was walking to Miss Claire's door, I would say, I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives over and over again until I got to her door. So I was confirming to myself and affirming to the universe that that's what I was going to be. I had no idea how I was going to get there. I just trusted that that's the path. That and I this is primary be. school. This is all in primary school or and all the way through my senior school. I used to go to Miss Claire. So it was for 12 years of my life at, at, at school that I was confirming this to myself. Anyway, Miss Claire. While being, while being labelled by your peers, the dunce. Dumb, dumb dunce. I mean, I used to get that all the time at school. And, and I didn't really have many friends at school as a result of that. I was very, very good at sport. And everyone wanted to be my friend when it came to physical education, you know, class, because, you know, Sarah can throw the furthest and hit the hardest and, you know, run, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, brain, bit soft. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, okay, when, I got it. I got the picture. So Miss Claire. So Miss Claire used to, she, you know, would teach me English and stuff, but she noticed I was very, very good at systems. And so she would help me see things in systems. So I can take things in bigger pictures and I can break them down into, you know, bite-sized pieces so people can understand things. So anyway, I I left school. I was very good at sport and I was uh, then selected into the Australian rowing team. And uh, I was then living at the Australian Institute of Sport and I was doing my rowing, and I was actually coxswain for the Australian team. And then once I finished and retired from rowing, uh, that's when, and this is where trust comes in again as well, I got a letter at, in my AIS inbox, and the inbox, the, the letter said, um, you've been invited to apply to the Australian College of Physical Education in Sydney. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's really odd. On the day that I retire, I get this letter out of the blue that says, you could, you know, inviting me to apply. And it was a college that was set up for elite athletes in recognition of their training time. So it was, it was taking into consideration the curriculum that had to be achieved, but also when people were doing different training. So I was trained, you know, I was there with, you know, um, league football players from Sydney, um, swimmers, runners, all that kind of stuff. 
So it was a, a great course. And when I completed that, we went, I went on to study psychology and I trained some elite athletes as well. So when I left physical education, I was training uh, world aerobics champions, um, basketball players, touch football players, etc. And then I started to notice that they couldn't visualize what they were doing when I was asking them to do certain things. And so that's when I studied psychology and sports psychology was just starting then. Mm. And then I left from that and I went into uh, I wanted to break from sports. Sport had defined me my whole life. And so I went into human resources with my psychology and I was the human resources for Flight Centre, um, the travel company in, in Victoria. And that's when chiropractic came into uh, uh, my life. Hold, hold that thing about it coming into your life. A couple of questions. Yeah. Are you, were you dyslexic? I would say I was. I had the reading age of about a 12-year-old. Mm. Because dyslexia, in a way, is its own superpower, isn't it? Because oh, a dis- it's incredible. a dyslexic has an astonishing ability, in my observation and from my reading, of seeing how bits fit together. My daughter's dyslexic. And she, if you lose your keys, she can find them in 20 seconds. She has an amazing sense of space. She has an amazing inventive mind and entrepreneurial uh, entrepreneurialism. Uh, but she has struggled to read. She's overcoming it. But it's interesting because you do label them as a bit slow because if if you can't read or even order numbers, you're thinking, oh, what's wrong with, you know, gosh, yeah. But when I've sat with her one-on-one, she's astonishingly quick. But she just has that visual thing because that part of the brain is taken up with spatial awareness, creativity, artistry, imagination. And uh, how terrible is it that for those 12 years, the system labels little people mm. as dumb and off to see Miss Claire, was it? Well, and uh, when parents come to come to us, you know, maybe in in a similar situation to you and they say their child's dyslectic, I I I just say, um, okay, so so let's rephrase that. Let's re uh um you know invent the word that actually they're not dyslexic mm. they're they're actually geniuses geniuses and they're geniuses in ways that don't fit in obviously to the system and how everybody um is supposed to learn they have their own unique style and honestly rodney i had not read a book until i was in my 30s isn't that astonishing I had not read a book. I read little summary ones, and the first book I ever wrote, I had A4 pieces of paper, and I wrote down every character in the book because I couldn't remember or comprehend how they fitted in. So when Johnny came into the story, how's Johnny related to Sally? And I went back to my A4 piece of paper to go, okay, Sally was Mary's daughter. Okay, now I know Johnny's the cousin of, you know, whatever it was. It was I had to write everything down. But it wasn't until after the birth of our second boy that I felt all of this pressure in my hands and this pressure going towards the pens near where our telephone was. And every time I got in the shower, true story, 
I would hear the whispers that would say, write a book. And I would yell out, I am not writing a book. Anyway, three months later, I started to write a book. My goodness. And, and I, go ahead. I, oh, my. Um, just by the way, General Georgie S. Patton was severely dyslexic. Mm -hmm. um, his family was very, very wealthy and he was schooled at home. But when he went to West Point, it was a huge struggle for him. And, of course, um, he was the most amazing general of World War II because he could see the system of mm -hmm. the battle and the logistics. And the and strategy. Could, and the strategy and the big picture. And like you, he forced himself. No general was better read than him. Mm -hmm. No one wrote more reports than him. Mm. And every book he read, and every report he wrote was a struggle. And um, so this dyslexia thing is an amazing capacity. Um, and then to think that you go through that and you write books, that's a wonderful, wonderful story for people. Tell me this, and then we'll get on to you discovering chiropractic. When you finished your rowing, was your body depleted and exhausted? I would say yes. Do you feel when you were rowing that you were being looked after nutritionally, uh, not overdoing it? My, this, my observation is this. We destroy our athletes. I don't know whether we still do. But athletes get destroyed by the system with coaches and managers and administrators wanting their rowing team to win at the Olympics, wanting them to do this, wanting them to do that. And they take these young people full of enthusiasm and energy, the top of the top, and they wreck them without proper rest, without mm. proper care, without proper nutrition without proper psychology, and then you get to the end of your career and you may not have made it or you may have made it, and then that's it. You know what I mean? And I just wondered whether physically how you were um, at the end of your rowing career, particularly in an age when the dietary experts on diet were so bizarre, you know, don't eat any egg, don't eat fat, don't don't eat this, you know, live on live on rubbish food. Um, so how did you physically feel at the how, how were you physically at the end of your rowing career? Uh, I was ex I was exhausted and I was over sport. I just I needed that I needed to have a break mm. from it. The intensity was huge. And remember I I had rowed but I was also coxswain. So I had a, I was one of the, at the time I was Australia's tallest coxswain that they'd ever had and probably heaviest. So for me to get down to 49 kilos, you know, was, or actually 45 kilos, um, was, uh, was, was a tall ask. So I would have been running 10K a day. We did two, two trainings in the boat, um, plus, plus weights, plus running. So it was, it was huge, and and I, I remember Rodney going and um, 
we had to weigh in each morning. The weight was taken, so obviously it was always that focus on scales and what you weigh, and not. It was all about. It was not about how you're functioning, you know. It no. was all about no. you know the the feelings and all things that. you could measure. Yeah, and so um, I remember I'd put on, you know, like this minuscule, minuscule amount of of weight, but for every part of that weight gain, I had to do an hour's bike ride in the sports med building. So on that particular day, I had to do a four-hour bike ride in the, in the sci-fi building with the guys coming out and taking my heart rate, monitoring me, you know, and I was a coxswain. So I, I, it, it was intense, you know, and, and because I was the coxswain with heavyweight rowers, they, they weren't necessarily watching their weight, but what they were told to eat if I look back now, is absolutely disgusting. I mean, all the parents that we work work with that have children that are playing high level sport send us, uh, um, you know, some of the literature that our kids are told to eat this, and uh, you know, things like up and go. Like seriously, mm. like how does that? How is that? You know, meant to optimize a, a performance? And if you're not, if you're not, our our point of view, you know, being an organic household, we always have been since the 19, early 1990-91, then if you can't make it in the kitchen, then don't have it. It's not no. going to serve, it's not going to feed your nerve system. And that's what we want to do is always making sure you've got nutrition to feed your nerve system. So I think after um, rowing, to answer your question, yes, I was I was depleted. I needed a change, and uh, and I didn't look back. When I went into phys ed, I suddenly found a, a, a system that I could follow so I could learn about the muscular system and the mm. cardiovascular, all of the systems, and it was easy for me. I graduated second with honours because of my mind and my system's mind. I'm like, this is great. This is easy. I can do this. So it was, um, Now, yeah. I interrupted you. Back to your discovery of chiropractic. Hmm. So we we went. Uh, Who's the we? Big pardon. Who's the we? Who's the, oh myself and my husband. So uh, you were together by then. Yes, we were together right. by then. We met at the gym when we were working, and I was training those elite athletes. Great. And we'd we I'd helped a friend open uh, the first gym in a shopping center of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere that was in uh, in Victoria. So we'd opened that gym. We, I met Randall, my husband, and we uh, – there was a lady at the gym that Randall had had some kind of – I think it was challenged with his lower back maybe, and this lady at the gym said, I'll go and see Ken. Ken was her chiropractor, and we were like, oh, okay, why not? You know, we didn't do medical model or alternative model or anything like that, so we thought, okay, let's go to Ken. Well, Ken, you know, all of a sudden I sat there and had these epiphanies with what Ken was saying with about the the nerve system, the master communicating system, self-healing, self-regulating, constantly adapting to our environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so we left. It was life-changing for, for Randall just within two adjustments, but we knew just like eating great food, you don't just do it once. You go consistently because you are constantly adapting to your environment. Your nerve system is always changing. Why wouldn't you want to go and get adjusted because it's great for you? So um, the next time we went, I, I had booked in for my appointment. I met Ken's wife, Karen, and uh, I used to receive adjustments from her again every week because we knew that this was life-changing. And then we went out for dinner uh, with them one night and a couple of other of their friends, and I just asked the question, supposedly out of the blue but maybe not, and said, oh, if you were going to study chiropractic again, where would you go? 
And they said, oh, we'd go to Iowa, um, Palmer College. And I said, Iowa, Palmer College, watch there. And they said, oh, that's the founding school of the profession where it all started in the 1800s. And I was like, hmm. Well, the next day, I, Rodney, I was back out where I had studied psychology at La Trobe University in Melbourne, and I went onto the internet and looked up Palmer College. And in those, back in that time, in the mid-1990s, you couldn't just print a page, right? It was yeah. those websites where you had to print the whole thing. So I had this wad of paper, and I took it out to the quadrangle, wrangle, and I sat in the quadrangle reading this information, and it said... Um, uh, about the nerve system, you know, the master communicating system of the body. It had a, a different definition of, of health being optimal, physical, mental and social well-being and not necessarily the absence of disease or infirmity. And then it had in the top right-hand corner, click here for the doctor of chiropractic program. And I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This this is the I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. I had no idea that chiropractors were doctors. Yeah, I had no idea that anything else was a doctor other than a medical doctor. I didn't know there were naturopathic doctors, that dentists were doctors. I had no idea. And so I've sat there and I'm like, oh, my God. So tears as this, you know, from 1972 as this five-year-old being hugged in my body, just going, this is it, Sarah. This is where we're meant to go. This is the defining moment of I'm going to be a doctor and change people's lives. So I was driving home, tears pouring out of my eyes, just going, oh, my gosh, I found it. This is what I meant to do and just had that real connection with it and walked into our house that my husband and I had just purchased and uh, and and we'd had just got married even though we were together for six years prior. And I walked into the kitchen and slabbed this wad of paper on the kitchen bench and I said, I'm moving to America. I'm going to Are you coming? Her. I'm going to study chiropractic. I said three options. You can, we can get a divorce. We can have a long-term relationship, but we all know how that works out. Oh, you can come with me. And he was kind of like, okay. Well, it took him two months to decide. I'd enrolled him anyway. I'm like, no, he's going to come and I'm going to enroll him anyway. And, uh, and two and a half months later, we had sold our house and we moved to America. And to come full circle to what my dad taught me at seven, ask the questions, trust your answer. I knew I was meant to go. And I trusted when people were saying, how are you going to afford to live there and go through college? And I said, I don't know. I'm trusting that this is where I'm meant to go. And sure enough, we got over there. We had sold everything that we owned down to a couple of cardboard boxes. And we end up, ended up being the recipient of the largest endowed chiropractic scholarship for both of us. First time a married couple had ever received it. Wow. And so that you know, that just cemented for me more that that's where I was meant to be. And then when I graduated from um, chiropractic college and uh, as I was saying to you about the dyslexia and when our second boy was born and that's when I, you know, in the shower, I'm like, write the book. And I mustered up that courage to put myself out there and write a book called The Vital Truth, Accessing the Possibilities of Unlimited Health. Now, that was back in 2006, and that book ended up winning a nonfiction literary award, and it's now sold in over 34 countries around the world. So How wonderful. And now I don't have, I don't have that. I, I don't even consider myself to have dyslexic. Now I'm no. a 
a prolific writer. Um, and then I wrote my second book in 2014 uh, called The Health Illusion, Is It Killing You? And, you know, both have been, um, you know, a journey of of my life and how we've raised our kids outside the system mm. and, and, yeah. and, chiropract- and chiropractic. I'm sorry for that throat clearing and um, going over this journey of yours because now we get to the heart of the topic. But it seems <laughs> to me interesting because the topic we're discussing is raising healthy children outside the system. And I just wanted to understand how you got there. Now, I understand it now for medicine. But you're outside, is it every system? Pretty much. (laughs) I guess because if you step outside the health system and you see it for what it is, like it's lost its way totally, hasn't it? My poor mother, when she got aged, and the doctors were lovely, but like you get 15 minutes with them and it's another pill. And then you're taking a pill to counteract the effects of that pill and then that pill. And it's just a machine spitting old people through with pharmaceutical companies and the whole system tuning through the money, all government supported. Well, you have and, on... and no sense of overall health. And I suppose if you see through that system you begin to look sideways or askance or ask the questions as your dad would do of the schooling system. And you say, is this what I want for my children? And what you're answering is I want to guide them. I'm their parent. I don't want to give them off to strangers to inculcate them with their values and their views and their half-assed understandings of the world. Mm. Is that how it went? Well, another, I guess, cliche that that Dad said to me was uh, consistently was find out what everyone's doing and run like hell in the opposite direction because that's (laughs) where... <laughs> is you know, I, I and and I see. I see as soon as I say that, I see him looking over his paper with his glasses on. Find out what everyone's doing and run like hell on the opposite. You know, it was just so ingrained in me. So I, 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 I believe from a young age with trust and asking questions and run like hell in the opposite direction because that's where it's at. Whatever it is, then. It was a nice recipe for me to go, okay, what do we want for our kids? I want that that I was raised in, in terms of that knowledge and that the emphasis on on looking at things differently. And I want to be able to home educate our kids. And I want to uh, um, raise them in a chiropractic approach to life. And, And that has been no... You know, mean feet, Rodney. You, you, our kids have created exactly the same things that everybody else's kid has created. They've had rashes, they've had lice, they've had worms, they've had um, uh, vomit, they've had headaches, they've had 
everything. But the only difference to the majority of people out there is the trust that we have, the conversations that we have with them, the actions that we demonstrate, and um, and the the knowing and the trust in the body that we instill in it. That's probably the only difference that we have to to other people. And and for 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 me the the journey i guess into the home education started probably in the late 1990s and we were pregnant with uh twins actually and we had some we were in america living in america pretty much through chiropractic college and we found out we were pregnant for this first time and we had some amish midwives now the amish are incredible incredible wise women and men, but I'm just talking about the women because we had them as midwives. And these women had sat at the birthing feet of mothers at the time that we knew them over 2,000 times, 25 sets of twins and only one stage three complication. And so when we used to go out twice a month to their farm and collectively share with all of these other couples that would come from all over Iowa and Illinois to share about our pregnancy journey. And on this particular day, Jean, who was the head head uh, or the lead midwife, asked a question. And we were sitting in a circle and she said, what's your greatest fear? And we were going around the group and going around the group and then I was kind of like squirming in my seat like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to admit, you know, I don't want to admit my greatest fear. came to my turn and I kind of mumbled it. And then they said, sorry, Sarah, we can't hear you speak up. And I said, I don't trust my body to birth. Now, I did trust myself to be a parent, an awesome parent. I did trust my body to grow and develop a child, but I didn't trust my body to birth, despite studying this incredible philosophy of chiropractic and innate intelligence and the nerve system and the wisdom that the body has. I didn't trust myself to birth. It was my Achilles heel. And then about 14 weeks after that conversation where I was trembling and crying my eyes out at the time that I shared it because it was so real and raw for me, I created a miscarriage at 14 weeks with our twins. And it was one of the most extraordinary experiences to go through. I didn't race off to the medical profession to have a DNC. I just trusted my body. And the twins gave me one of the greatest gifts, which was your body can do this. Your body is designed to birth. You can do this. And I went on from that experience, Rodney, to have three extraordinary home births. So our first born was born in the States with the Amish midwives. Our second was born at home with just myself and my husband, Randall, and a colleague. We had a, a midwife associated with her his pregnancy, but not with his birth. And then our third, which is a girl, first girl born into the family in 36 years, and she, we had a mid, we didn't have any midwife associated with her pregnancy, but we did at her birth. She was the ultimate test of trust. She was a breach birth. And the experience was uh, tremendous. You know, I find it disheartening for women who have 
a, um, a breech position for their baby and told that they have to have a C-section or they have to turn the baby or, or you know, yada, yada, because the birth experience is phenomenal. Like it takes a little bit more, you know, um, uh, focus and different pushing, but but it's it's still an amazing experience. And so all of the the home birthing of the children, the raising them in a, in a, an organic um, food and organic environment. Then, if we were trusting our children that they have everything inside of them in order to express health then why wouldn't I also trust them that they have everything inside of them to guide their own education? Why wouldn't I? What about pain relief for birthing? No, I didn't have any of that. With a breech birth, oh, my goodness. No, I didn't have any of that. I, to, to be honest with you, um, Rodney, I didn't find birthing painful. I found it... I found it a you know the the stretching of the the vaginal canal and the vaginal wall, but I didn't find it painful. I was very attuned to our children, and it was very gentle. It was you know they were all beautiful experiences. Um, I, I and that's because do you think do you think that's a house thing, an attitude thing? Because, like, there'll be women listening who'll be saying, oh, really, that wasn't my experience, right? And sort yeah. of almost hating on you in an envious way because they so suffered. Well, and we always say to parents, the way everyone's birthing experience is right for them. Mm. So for me, my birth experience were right for me given as you've known from my history of ask the questions and trust, it was all about trust for me. That's been my kind of journey through life. Other mums that have had C-sections that come into us in the practice, we're like, it, it all works out perfectly. It always okay. does. So you don't, you, you, you're saying horses for courses. You're not saying this is the way. No, 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 no. Okay. I, I would never shame a, a, a mother for not birthing, you know, inverted commas, naturally or at home or anything. Okay. I think everyone, we are all on a journey. We're all here to have our experiences and each experience provides us with another chapter to be written in our life, whatever that would be. So we mm. just peel away the layers, peel away the layers with these experiences that we have. So, um, and 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 mothers do come to us with, uh, you know, I feel awful that I had a C-section. That's not what I meant to, was meant to have. But, you know, once we have the conversations around the experiences and the journeys yet to come, that might mean that they may, may make a different decision for their child going forward. And isn't that great? You know, so we've, we we learn from the experiences that we have. Now, we've got the children born, finally. <laughs> and we uh, made the decision to raise them healthily, chiropractically, outside the system. What does that mean? So just like you were asking them with regards to the pregnant the pregnant mums and, you know, they might be, you know, hating me because I had a birth in a certain way or I didn't have pain medication. It all comes back to how you are interpreting health because if health, if you're raised in a household where 
you know, there's a pill for every ill and then you uh, race to someone to get something to take something away, then you're in a feeling approach to health. If you don't feel good, then you must be unhealthy. Therefore, you'll go and get the doctor prescribed medication or you'll go and get the over-the-counter medication to take whatever you feel away so that you can say that you're healthy again or that you're right, whatever that may be. So for us, we have um, uh, raised our kids with a very comfortable relationship with pain. And it's been no small feat, like I said before, in raising kids outside the system. But we never wanted our kids to think that their body got it wrong. You know, when you That's come from when you come from a position of sickness, sick actually means to chase. So you're just chasing something when it's sickness. And sickness implies that your body got it wrong, that whatever is there is not meant to be there. But if we understand from our thoughts, physical, chemical, and emotional now, that we create whatever we do inside of ourselves to give us the messages in order to have us consciously be aware of what's going on so we can change whatever needs to be changed physically, chemically, or emotionally. So we we always looked at our children with any health expression what I call a health expression, I coined that term back in the early 2000s, which, by the way, is now utilised around the world by health professionals and, and families and individuals to replace the word of sickness. Because health, when we look at the word, um, Rodney, lots of people think health is five things. I actually did this when I, on the Sunshine Coast when I went and asked a whole lot of people what they thought health was. Top five responses were this. having no Having no pain having no signs or symptoms, eating right, exercising and being happy. That's what people thought health was, all feeling states, right? You would you would agree to that. But when we look at the root meaning of the word, the word health actually means wholeness. And in order for something to be whole, we have to have two halves. So we have to have a positive and we have to have a negative. So in order to create the positive, you can't get away from the negative. You know, health is not a linear line with, you know, disease or death at one end and health at the other, and you've got to keep pushing yourself up towards the health line. That's not the way it, it works. We have within our body positive and negative occurring all the time. So we have toxic and tonic reactions occurring in the body. We have cell growth and we have cell death occurring in the body at the exact same time. We have sodium and potassium pumps, you know, one's a positive and one's a negative charge occurring across the cell membranes at the exact same time. Now, if you remember before when I said when we go through the hierarchy of the systems within the body that we go from systems to organs to tissues to cells to organelles to molecules to atoms to subatomic particles to vibrations to energy and light, and when we break down the light, we get a positive and we get a negative. Health means wholeness. You can't get health by avoiding disease. It doesn't happen. You you won't know health unless you know disease. So you need both in order to grow. So if we go to the first seven years of a child's life, you will see that they create lots and lots and lots of health expressions. I, I, I'll use the our listeners' 
terminology, they create lots of sicknesses in order to have that growth experience. At no other time in your life will you create as many health expressions than you do in that zero to seven age group. That's our physical age group. Now, when you go from seven to 14, you come out of your physical body and you go into your chemical body. In the chemical body, you'll have the the undertakings and the chemical changes of puberty, and then you go through puberty. And then when you get to 14 to 21, you come out of your chemical body and you go into your emotional body, you know, where we're looking for independence as that 14, 15, 16-year-old, you know, I love you parents, but I don't want to be around you. You know, I want to go out with my friends, but I need your money. And they start to go for it that teenage year, they start to go into their cave, right? And the cave is the bedroom. And it's designed that way. It's meant to happen that way because that's where they first start to get the separation from the family and themselves. So, and lots of people, lots of people say they just won't come out of their room. They, you know, they won't come and sit with us at the dinner table anymore, yada, yada. Well, what we used to do with our kids, if that was a situation that ever occurred, we'd take dinner to them. We'd go Mm. and knock on their door. Hey, is it okay if we come for dinner? You know, we take dinner into their room and we'd sit on their bed and we'd have dinner as a family in their room because that's where their cave was. That's their moving away from the family. Anyway, I digress a little bit, but from 21 back to 28, we go back into our physical body. You know, you want to go to the gym, you want to catch a mate, you know, except, you know, buffed and shine, all that kind of stuff. And then the pattern just keeps repeating, physical, chemical, emotional, physical, chemical, emotional. But when our kids were young, as I've uh, alluded to before, that they have created lots of different health challenges during that time. But it goes back to how you're interpreting health. Now, for us, for them to have those health expressions, we were, one, adjusting our children and, two, educating them on what was occurring in their body, the growth that was undertaking, the innate intelligence that was alerting them to changes that were taking place. So if I share this example with you, um, Rodney, when our eldest boy was five, we were getting ready to move to New Zealand, to um, Waiheke Island and to, you know, set up shop and have a different experience. Anyway, I used to take them to the skate park at Alexandra Headland on the Sunshine Coast and there was this ramp in the middle that he would be up the top of and he always found it challenging to get down. Anyway, we we went home. A couple of nights later, I could hear him tossing around in his bed. And I said to my husband, I'm just going to go and check on Annam. I went round to his bedroom, knelt down by his bed, placed my hand on his forearm, and with certainty and clarity in my voice, like my dad did to me when I was seven, you got all the answers, ask the questions, trust the answer. I said to Annam, what's going on? I don't know. I don't know, came his reply. And I said, yes, you do. What's going on? And he paused and he said, well, clearly I created a health expression. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, good job, buddy, health expression. Again, it's all about asking questions. What's the health expression about? I don't know. Yes, you do. Physical, chemical or emotional? And he said, it's physical. Great job, buddy. Health expression, physical body. What's the physical about? And he said, well, you know that skate ramp? And I said, yes. He said, well, you know how I haven't been able to get down? And I said, yes. And he said, well, I think I'm going to grow in my strength and I'll get down the ramp. 
and my hand squeezed his forearm just that little bit firmer and I said, do you think or do you know? And he said, I know. And I said, great job, buddy. Health expression, physical body, you're going to grow in your strength and you're going to get down that ramp. And then I adjusted him, not because anything was wrong, but because everything was right. Mm. And I kissed him goodnight. Two days later, he was down that ramp. Now, if your interpretation of health is coming from how you feel, then in a household that espouses the feeling approach to health, then the circumstances would have been very different, wouldn't they? That the the Mm. mum would have got a thermometer. We've never had a thermometer in our house. We have never taken our kids' temperatures. We only have toilet rolls in the inverted commas medicine cupboard or the bathroom cupboard. A medication may have been given to that child. Um, And at worst case scenario, maybe there was a race to the night GP at a hospital or or a local medical centre. So it it all goes down to how you are looking at health, the trust that you have in the human body, the understanding of that, the language that you use that then creates the congruency with our own actions and with our children as well. And we have always said that we are not here as parents to remove an experience that our children are having. We are here to help guide them so that they can best understand why they have created that in the first place. On this outside the system, have your husband and you been at one? Yes. And has it uh, been that you laid it all out day one or has it been uh, a process by which you have learned as you've gone along and made necessary adjustments and become more experienced or has it been following the plan that you set out? Uh, I w- we spoke a lot. Remember I said to you at the very beginning that Dad had those three lessons and we add, we wanted to add to that, mm-hmm. uh, which was the language and the home education, the chiropractic, um, and it, being an organic household, eat great food. Uh, we, we were already doing a lot of that anyway, so mm-hmm. to put that into how we were, as in education, as in looking ourselves at different ways to educate ourselves, then we wanted to make sure that we had that with the kids. So, yes, we were, to answer your question, yes, we were on board with each other prior to bringing kids into the world. And we were together for 11 years before we decided to have kids. Mm-hmm. So we had we had journeyed a lot um, together. We understood each other very well. And then when we came to bringing kids into the world, we were both all in with um, very congruent on the health approach and the home education. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and you know, it sounds like it might have been an easy journey. It, it hasn't been a necessarily an easy journey um, in terms of, um, you know, we get challenged as, uh, as a family, um, uh, you know, kids and their health expressions. Um, however, it has been relatively easy as we've gone through and made sure that our kids have a comfortable relationship with pain and what health actually means. And what were the biggest mistakes you think you made looking back? Mm, I would say I'm not sure if it's a mistake or an anticipation 
I didn't anticipate how uh, technology would, the impact that technology would have. And I would say our kids were introduced to, uh, they got their first computer at 12. So maybe that was too early. Uh, you know, That's when a I, tough when one I, for everyone. It is a t- it is a tough one because every family is different and and I guess for if I look back to say was there anything that we felt that we did wrong I, I would always come from that position of no because I believe you can only make decisions with the information that you have at the time mm. and, Good and as we yeah as we grew we um as a family we did more so we always had dinner together we always had cooked meals and any time with the kids during the day if they had something that they wanted to discuss and perhaps we were time poor as a family then we would we would say to them let's put it on the table that's what it was called so at night time when we were all sitting around having dinner, um, we would then say, okay, who had a conversation that they wanted to raise for on the table? And we would go around. And we did that um, mainly, Rodney, because we thought that if the kids have a question, it's going to impact our life as well. And because we had both chosen to to parent wholeheartedly, the two of us, not just one raising the kids and the other one, you know, dipping in and dipping out kind of thing, as in it wasn't just the sole responsibility of the female to raise the kids, even though, you know, 98% of the decisions around the children usually has to do with the female in the house. We both wanted to have our eyes on any um, thoughts that were going on in our kids' heads because that was going to uh, impact the whole nucleus of the family. So if the kids were raising a question we knew that the answer and the question that they were asking was also going to benefit our own life Mm. so we always came from that position of it must give you must have given you a lot of comfort having witnessed the amish community yeah you're doing yeah they're a lovely lovely and you know what here's the here's the great part of it um one of the one of the midwives had um uh, six girls, one had six boys, one had three girls, three boys, and one had seven girls and three boys, if I've got that correctly. And they were all home educated. Yes. And these children were just radiant. Gorgeous. They yeah. they they were interactive. They could interact with anyone. They were um, self-directed in terms of their learning and, and what they, you know, wanted in their life. They were polite. There was just so much to love about these children that um, it we wanted to home educate anyway. And then meeting them and having them come into our life, it was like, yeah, that's just confirmation that we're definitely yeah. going to go down, go to down. And we didn't do it for, we, were, we are not religious. No, no. You know, I understand. We, we didn't do it for a but you, but there they are, eschewing technology and medicines, and the kids, uh, and the old people, such rude good health mm. compared to say wandering down Brooklyn or Auckland, uh, downtown, and you compare that to the Amish people, and mm. you think, well, how would you want to be, and how would you want to live? Because mm. something's wrong. And that's what we're exploring here. There is something wrong. Um, can you imagine the circumstances? Are there any circumstances where you would rely on traditional 
allopathic medicine. When I say traditional, I've got that round the wrong way. But you know yeah. what I mean, modern medicine. <laughs> I'll give you, you, yeah, I'll give you a great example of that. Um, yes, and we educate, you know, I educate very clearly on this, that the allopathic approach to health, the treatment, the go to someone to get something is great when you have an emergency. So yes. you've got a, a loss of limb, heart attack, car accident, uh, anything like that, then the then that's what they're great at doing is is saving lives in that capacity. But for the everyday cough, cold, et cetera, et cetera, no, I, I um, uh, you know, we've chosen to make sure that we adjust our children every week. And because of that neurological integrity that they have and the clear communication that they have, their body doesn't experience those extremes. So our kids all know when, you know, about those health approaches as well and when to utilize them. So I'll give you an example. At 17, our eldest boy was staying with some friends down at Lake Kirapiro and he jumped off a bridge and he was running back to the the uh, bridge again to jump off again and he didn't see some tin and he sliced his foot. And the foot was quite, mm. quite, was, was quite deep. And uh, we were up in Auckland. We weren't in the in the Waikato. We weren't close to him. So he rang. This is the first thing he said, Rodney. He said, okay, Mum, I know what you're going to ask. Why did I create this? And I know why. We don't have to go there. I know why I created this. And, <laughs> um, and uh, I said, good. And he said, it's fairly deep. Um, it probably needs some stitches. I said, okay, well, that's fine. Just just make sure that the blood oozes out. You don't need to wash it or anything. Just wait for the blood to ooze out. And blood's not the problem, right? Blood's good. Unless you're loss of limb or hemophiliac, then, then you want to make sure that you're getting, you know, the help that you need. But for the everyday person, blood is not usually a problem. So when blood is oozing out of something that is a deep cut, then it's it's pushing out the debris that's got in. It's a self-cleaning mechanism of the innate intelligence of the human body. So, and coagulation usually occurs within, you know, two to three minutes. So I said to them, wait, just wait for the blood to push itself out. It'll clean it. Um, it'll form the scab. Um, if you need to, you know, do anything, then get your own saliva and put it on your uh, on your cut because we have healing immune qualities within our saliva. Like all animals in nature, lick their wounds. We humans don't tend to do that too much, but we've taught our kids to do that. So uh, anyway, the um, and I say wait till the next day and and we'll see how it is and go and get your stitches. Anyway, so the next day um, he could see that the the you know the blood had had um, done its job. It cleaned it all out. Um, it was quite deep. And our friends took him to uh, the local GP. So he's he's never been to a GP before. He's 17. He's never entered into the system. So he is navigating this all on his own. And he walks in and he says, oh, hi, you know, I would like to get some stitches, please. And uh, they said, okay. So he went through to the doctor and the doctor sat him down and said, oh, what did you do? And he goes, I cut myself on some um, you know, some metal. And the, the guy said, okay, so where are we are with vaccines and what you need to do uh, to get updated there? Um, and obviously you'll need a tetanus. And and I um, said, uh, no, thanks. I'm just here for stitches, please. And then he looked at the cut and he goes, oh, well, I'm going to need to put a local anesthetic in that to do the stitches. And Anam said, no, thank you. I would just like my stitches. I have a high tolerance for pain. Could you please just stitch it up? Very wow. clear very certain 
And then, you know, the doctor probably thought, oh, the force is strong in this one, so I won't go any further. So he did what he was, uh, you know, to his credit, the, the GP, you know, stitched him up and um, and Anna was out the door. So it's it, it, in order for him to be able to navigate that on his own, he had to have trust in his body, confidence in what he knew to be true and uh, uh, a respect for the system that he was entering into. So he wasn't rude. He wasn't impolite to the medical doctor. He just knew what he wanted. Didn't take pain medication or anything like that because we've taught our kids that pain is your friend. If pain is there, then there is a there is undertakings within the body in order to create change. So do what would be best for you, which is to rest and just let the body undertake whatever it is. Now, we have chiropractic, of course, in our life, not to take anything away, but like I said before, everything is right. So getting our kids adjusted regularly is important. Um, Tell me you eat what you prepare in your kitchen Yes. Tell me about the diet the children have been raised on. Uh, well, we are uh, uh, gluten-free, so no wheat, um, very minimal dairy, so we don't have milk or anything like that. We do have some cheeses um, and organic veggies from the garden. Uh, and, you- oh, and meat and, you know, and, yeah, meat, eggs, etc. but uh, not, so- not milk and not... Uh, so gluten and dairy free. Is there a reason for the gluten and dairy free? Yeah, we just don't. We don't like it. I don't like how the wheat is actually uh, made or produced. I guess in in westernized countries, too much of the glyphosate sprays, etc., that mm-hmm. are put on it, the alteration of it. It's just not a healthy food to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates challenges, obviously, within the the gut and the biomine of the body, as does dairy. And dairy, because it's you know pasteurized and homogenized. I mean, if you get can get raw dairy, then that's raw milk. That's fantastic. You know, get it raw because then it hasn't been pasteurized and homogenized. And pasteurized is just basically when it, you know, heats the prejebas out of it, and what's mm. left is the bacteria in the milk. So you're still putting bacteria into your body when you're buying something from the supermarket. So Mm. we just decided not to, not to do those avenues. And tell me what you can about your children now and what their plans are. Oh, thank you. Uh, Well, when they were little, it's interesting when you, when they are little and you become the observer of your children as a parent and you look at where their interests are and you you open doors for them in in those ways and sometimes those interests change and you open a different door somewhere else so that was always our 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 role as parents is to be their guide and to see where their interests are and to facilitate that into actualization until they could get to a decision where they would be able to say to themselves whether they wanted to do it or whether they didn't so interesting when they were young our youngest she always liked her fitness and uh uh, eating organic food and doing the cooking so she had always cooked from when she was very little and our um middle boy he loves rugby and at the age of five, he had a ball under his arm and he said, I'm only ever here to play rugby. 
So all of his home education was done through rugby. So we would go to the rugby field and we would do maths from that. I wouldn't take a project, you know, like a a, a, a measuring tape and a projector, a, a, um, a protractor and all that kind of stuff. I would just say, okay, what do you think the, the angle is estimated to get this kick over here? What do you think that would be? Anyway, he's very good at spatial um, spatial awareness as a result of that. And then our eldest boy loved building, whether it was Lego or whether it was these massive catapults that he would build out the back, anything, he'd find anything and just build, you know, carts and uh, things. So cut to now at 21, 19 and 17, our youngest um, has just finished her, uh, um, like I would guess I would say level one in nutrition through an online course that she's doing out of Australia. And she's just finished it, uh, which well, is actually 16, about to turn 17. She's just finished her fitness leadership and personal training course out of the New Zealand Institute of Health and Fitness. Our second boy is in uh, um, landscaping, uh, uh, not landscaping, um, earth moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is... Uh, well into his rugby, plays rugby at a high high level, um, and our eldest is in building. So it's it's interesting when you when you can look where their interests are at a young age and and uh, nurture and nourish and complement where they're going um, in their life. It's interesting to look now as to. Mm. Um, where they are, and the, and proud to say, they would be proud to say that they've never had uh, takeaway food, so no McDonald's, no KFC, no right. that. So, when you look at our young people today, and you compare them to just fifty years ago, or if you look at our young people today and you compare them to the Amish community or to people living in poor traditional countries where they're, you know, something has gone horribly wrong for our kids. They're extremely unhealthy physically. You can see it. Mm-hmm. They have jaw, teeth issues, often obese at a young age, physically weak, and afflicted by supposedly mental issues, many of them, and always trotting off with something wrong with them, and a victim mentality oftentimes. Now, of course, that's a gross generalization. But I think if you look at a picture of 1963 school class 10-year-olds and looked at a picture 2023 10-year-olds school picture, just physically it's so different and so wrong. And so we have to be asking some very, very serious questions about we've got more health, more food, more opportunities than ever before. And you can wander down the street and see such a level of unhappiness amongst our young people that it's heartbreaking. 
Do you feel that? Yeah, I I agree. And and you know, I think being a, a health professional, it's something that I, you know, I observe just as I move around the community or 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 travel. I I, I notice that. And you know, Rodney, the average person will have fourteen thousand medications in their lifetime. Oh my goodness. Fourteen thousand. Now that does not include over-the-counter medications. If you add over-the-counter medications, and I'm glad you're sitting down, it comes to forty thousand. That's one person. So the question you have to ask yourself in order to stop that amount of medications, you have to unpack the illusions that you carry for yourself around what health actually is. Mm. But until, pop- you, until you unpack that, you're not going to see it. And, and, and if you keep having this interpretation of health with regards to how you feel and you have to avoid something, and avoid it and avoid it, then you're just going to create more insults to your body. So it's 40,000 medications, 72 vaccinations now for for children, and, and they're coming after the adults too. So it's it, you, a, a body. I'm, sometimes I get amazed at the innate intelligence of the body that it can still <laughs> move and function, you know, it's because it's crazy the amount that's out there. But in order, oh, and, and education is a part of that too. Since schools started, the literacy rate of children has plummeted. Yes. No one ever looks at those statistics. No. Now, if you go to a guy called John Taylor Gatto, who passed away a number of years ago, I had the absolute pleasure of listening to him speak, an extraordinary human being. He wrote a book called Dumbing Us Down, The Hidden Curriculum of Compulsory Schooling. And he was a teacher out of New York State. And he, you know, he spoke very clearly about this literacy rate that has been on a sharp decline since schools came in. Mm. And and it's no wonder that that kids are, are drugged out, um, parents are stressed out, um, kids are, 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 are they're not getting dumber, they're they're dumbed down in terms of the information that they are provided with or the avenues that they're allowed to go to because they're not able to critically think for themselves. Even though schools say we, you know, we develop critically thinking children, it, it's not. No. They're not thinking for themselves. They're not able to question because if they question, then they're questioning authority and authority always rules when you're in that environment. So they're not having the the opportunity to rule. And, and I think what the most important aspect of this going through school is I wrote a a chapter in the health illusion. It's called drug pushes are closer than you think. And it's, it's not for the faint hearted, but it's very confronting. And the confronting part of it is that the drug pusher starts in the home. It mm. starts when our kids are little, it starts with the language of there you go, darling, this will make you feel better. And so Absolutely. we're taught we're taught, we're taught, we're taught to whatever is there shouldn't be there and I've got to take it away in order for me to be happy and feel good. And then when the child comes to the age of 12, this is where it gets confusing for children. At at 12 now in schools, children are pushing drugs. 
whether it's the the prescription drug that they have been prescribed from a medical doctor or it's an illegal drug that they have been able to have access to and they now sell in the schoolyard. But if some kid is there at the school and they're vulnerable in some way, shape or form, then some kid is going to say to them, here, mate, take this. This will make it all go away. And that fits all what of they've and that fits what they've heard their whole life. Exactly. So all of a sudden we go from the drug pusher in the house to the drug pusher in the school. Mm-hmm. This is where the children get confused because the, that school kid is offering that child that's in that vulnerable state something to take something away. Mm. And then the parents are like, what are you doing that for? You shouldn't be doing that. So these kids are getting these confused messages of, hang on, I was raised for all of those years telling me that something was going to take something away and I was going to feel better. And now when I'm searching for someone, something to take something away because I haven't got the skills in conversation to be able to share it with someone or I haven't been exposed to vulnerability enough to share that with my parents, whatever that may be for that child, I'm going to go and take something to take it away. And then we we clamp down on our children for, for for doing that so it's we get these mixed messages with these kids but we get the 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 continuity of taking the drugs to take it away to you know ending up being 40,000 in our lifetime well listeners and me we're living in the system right we are in awe of you and your family because it's like a super family to us. (laughs) Is it possible for us to take some baby steps to make a better life, or is it all in all or nothing? No, definitely baby steps, definitely. And we actually have on our website, vital-wellbeing, an online course, Take Charge of Your Health, that parents can go to if they wanted to, to start taking those baby steps. It's teaching a little bit more of what we've what we've spoken about today. And, and it's being, you know, it's like anything when you get that aha moment. You know, I had that when I went to chiropractic college for the first time and I heard that definition of health being optimal physical, mental and social well-being and not necessarily the absence of disease or infirmity. I was like, what? You mean health isn't about how you feel? You know, because mm. that's what I was taught, right? Going through school, going through physical education, no one could define what health was. Going through psychology, no one could define what health was. It was all about how you how you feel and having to take something away. So for me, my I had this big epiphany moment, you know, that health isn't about, you know, feeling taut, tight and terrific. It's it's more than that. And so for for parents to um uh have take those small steps to do those epiphany moments because it can be it, it can be confronting but it it is something that you can learn and take mm. the steps towards um you know a so tell me system tell me i gosh i've been so interested that i forgot to tell everyone that they're listening to rally check radio and real talk with rodney high <laughs> And I've got on board with me Dr. Sarah Farrant, who's this living, living the life of what she preaches and teaches and um, has explained to us. And you have to say, we have to look at 
what we're doing and think it's not working when you see children so miserable physically and mentally um oh my goodness it's heartbreaking to me i think it's heartbreaking to listeners and um where did listeners go dr sarah to find out more of what they can do where can they go uh, and find out about you what you're promoting what you're talking about so uh, the website would be the best place to go to so mm-hmm. that is vital-wellbeing.com so when you say dash it's like a hyphen like yes a small, yeah. yeah not an underscore the hyphen yeah, yeah. Vi- vital vital hyphen wellbeing one yeah. word dot com dot com vital-wellbeing.com and, and on, on there we have all the uh, the um, blogs that I write, the recipes, like what are we eating in our house, um, the articles, the books, the vital truth and the health illusion. We also have our minerals on there. We obviously didn't get to talk about that and the importance of that, but that's that's okay. People can go and find more. Have you gone back to your remedial reading teacher? I've forgotten her name. Dr. Miss Claire. Dr. No, Miss, Miss Claire. Miss Claire. Have you kept in touch with Miss Claire? You know what? I haven't, but I always think about her. I dedicated my second book to um, Miss Claire, and uh, um, she's probably passed away now. I'm 56, so Mm. she would have been at least in her 40s when she was teaching me. So I would say she more more than likely passed away. I don't know. Isn't it funny how great these teachers can be? Tom Sowell, who's a great economist who happens to be black, and he grew up in the Bronx, and he had this very tough school teacher who would smack them. (laughs) And they had to get their spelling right and their arithmetic right. Yeah. And he decided with his classmates that she was picking on them because, you know, they were little black kids. And... He said he attributes his success in life. He would have written 40, 50 books and is a very famous scholar to her. Mm. And he said such was her love for us that she knew we had to be not just good but better Mm. than average, better. And his classmates went on to become great CEOs and all the rest of it, all attributed to this teacher Mm. who wouldn't, accept excuses from these little black children in the Bronx Mm. and set a standard for them. Nice. So it's funny how I think there's I I think there is I think everybody in their lifetime can attribute something to a teacher that they yeah that they that they had. Okay, Sarah. Now there was something you were going to remind me of that's coming up. Yes, so we are, or I, I'm doing a tour uh, raising healthy kids outside the system and uh, we're setting off on the tour next month in November and VFF asked if they could uh, promote me and the, and the tour, which is fantastic. So uh, it, for those that are listening that would like to attend, they can go to their local coordinator in their area to find out more information or they can email hello at voicesforfreedom.co.nz if they want to know more and the inbox will disseminate Wonderful. that to the right place. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. it and will it be up on your webpage where you're going? 
I think it. I, I, I think it will. I'll need to speak with um, BFF. Uh, uh, now, your uh, webpage. I'm sorry. If I went to your webpage, could I find out where you're going and talking? Uh, yes, I believe okay. so. Yeah, right. I believe you're well, Doctor Doctor Sarah Ferrant. What a wonderful, insightful woman. What an amazing story about dyslexic being the dunce, not just for one or two years, but for 12 years, which is a pretty horrendous repetition of telling you what you are, but walking across that school ground with that affirmation. Mm. Every time that Sarah did it, this little girl, and then making it to be not just a doctor, but a best-selling author. It's an extraordinary story. And then having the strength to step outside the system because that requires extraordinary strength but that strength given to her when she was seven from her dad to do what's right and to run the other way when the crowd are going in one direction and to raise three healthy children who know themselves and that little 17 year old man not little i bet but going off to the gp to be stitched for the first time to see a doctor and telling him no he doesn't need any shots, thank you very much. And no, he won't need pain relief. Oh my goodness, what a story. And not being rushed to the doctor straight away. Very impressive. How wonderful are we at Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, to be blessed with such wonderful guests to inspire us, to educate us, to lift our sights, and to improve our knowledge and to improve our understanding of one another. Remember, you can text me at 2057. You can email me, inbox at radio. We are truly blessed. Thank you for listening. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And uh, how often do we get to say this? Chalk up a win for the good guys. Free speech union. What a win. What an achievement. To tell us all about it, we're joined by the chief executive of the free speech union. He's familiar to longtime listeners. Jonathan Ailing. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Rodney. Well done. Extremely well done. Good for you. Now tell me, for listeners that don't know, tell us who Momo St. John is and tell us what happened to her when stuff came after her? Well, the whole point of the Momo St. John saga is that uh, we're not going to say who she was. Uh, an anonymous Twitter Sorry, account has existed. <laughs> I didn't mean that. You know what I no, mean? No, no, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So, so an anonymous uh, Twitter account has existed for some years now, uh, operated by um, an individual providing their perspectives on on uh, hot takes of politics and culture, and uh, and you know what? That's one of the great uh, joys of of social media for all the ills that it may introduce into our society. There's also the question of it um, enabling everyday citizens to use their voice to advocate uh, for the perspectives and beliefs that they hold. And so uh, this is an individual who uh, identified as a medical health practitioner somewhere in the country. And uh, several weeks back, uh, somehow, 
the identity of this uh, of this Twitter account was was discovered, and it turned out it was a very senior medical individual in the country and uh, a journalist at the Press, which is the Christchurch newspaper owned by staff, uh, got hold of this information and contacted this senior medical practitioner and said, "Look, we've review, reviewed your Twitter account." Um, we think your content is homophobic, uh, transphobic and racist. And uh, we, our question really is, how can you hold the position you do uh, while holding these views? Doesn't it make Maori and trans people unsafe to be under your care because you're such a bigoted person, essentially, was the inference. And uh, she said, you've got till 5 p.m. to come back to me. Uh, otherwise, we're going to expose who you are and how terrible your views are. And this is really... Uh, this is really just a question of groupthink gone wrong. Uh, this is, these are bullies coming after those who are voicing opinions that uh, that dissent from what is mainstream orthodoxy. And uh, and so, really, the, the the question at hand was: Do we still live in a society where you're allowed to have a professional job and disagree? And, and, and have a variety of opinion. We talk about diversity so much, but does diversity of opinion mean anything anymore? And so uh, before long, uh, we, we got called in. Just, uh, just, this... uh, just to stop there, Jonathan, I'm sorry to do this to you, but her she the questions contained the allegation, so she was guilty by the question. It That's was right. Like, it wasn't like... Um, do you think you're a little bit racist? It was your racist. How do you think people feel? And <laughs> she was racist because she disagreed with racism. That is to say, she disagreed with, uh, as I understand it, she disagreed with uh, priority be giving to people on waiting lists because of their race. Uh, she disagreed with uh, co-governance, uh, which is to distinguish people by race and give one race advantages over the other. And she was labelled transphobic and a threat to transgender people because she think she thinks a woman is a a woman and a man is a man as biologically defined. So her views were what overwhelmingly most people think, but more particularly, overwhelming like what people have thought since the beginning of the human race. Well, that's right. Now, uh, I I think we also need to keep in mind the response that her employer provided here. And you're absolutely right, Rodney. This was the age old. So when did you stop beating your wife type question? That yes. that just soon makes makes horrible assertions from the outset. That's not really what's up for debate. The debate is how serious a bigot are you? And so uh, the journalist in question approached uh, Te Whatu Ora, uh, the, the, um, the health ministry, and, and uh, said, what is your comment of a senior health practitioner of this name, uh, holding these views and operating in the role that they do. And really, the issue that the Free Speech Union has uh, in this whole saga is how Te Whatu Ora responded. We're not actually that surprised with the way the media carried themselves. I don't think you you were surprised to hear that there was groupthink and, and um, a considerable lack of intellectual diversity uh, present in our mainstream media. What was really disappointing was the way Te Whatu Ora responded to this. And, and they initiated an employment review to, to look into uh, 
uh, the comments that were being made. And, and there was no, I mean, again, this was an, an anonymous account. There was obviously no association between who this person was and their employer. Uh, this didn't reflect on Te Whati Ora at all. What on earth does the Ministry of Health think it has to do with initiating an employment review of this person's opinions and perspectives. It's just uh, simply not acceptable. And so that's really where we've started to put the pressure. And, and we were, I was gobsmacked, Rodney. I've I've worked in a, in a minister's office. I've I've worked, uh, you know, in in the Beehive. And the fact that this media request went all the way up to the Minister of Health's office to go, how do we respond to this? How do we deal with the pressure that's coming from the media? It's just creating a storm in a teacup. And this is exactly what uh, I think happens with so many comms um, managers and comms uh, practitioners nowadays. We all try; they're, they're so risk averse. They can't just, the response to Fatu order should have given was, this is an anonymous Twitter account allegedly associated with one of our employees. We have no comments because this, in, this individual has the right to make claims and the statements that they wish. Jog on. And I think if that had been the response, there would not have been no story here. But it was the pearl clutching and, and the, the 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 fretting over, oh, well, how is this going to look in a, in a journalist article that really empowered the journalists to then drum up a witch hunt against those that are daring to voice dissenting opinions. And so really that is that is where we need to continue to hold our pressure, to, to keep uh, employers accountable for the way that they treat employees and remind them that they do not have to agree with their employees. There does not have to be consensus on these issues in order for employees to be able to work in employees' uh, premises, especially when it's the public service. And strangely, um, her manager followed her on Twitter. <laughs> I, I I wasn't aware of that. That that that's ironic. Yes, presumably because he was enjoy or she was enjoying it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's the whole thing is. So let's just recap to where we are. A senior person in the health system is tweeting up a storm, um, and debating with people <laughs> and learning. You know that she's having a communication. She sadly has to keep herself anonymous because that's how it works these days. Um, along the way, she expresses a view that rationing according to race is wrong, separating people by race is wrong, uh, which is standard Western philosophy. And then she also accepts um, that a woman is a woman and a man is a man in general, which again is standard standard view of mankind since the year dot. Because of this, some journalist learns of this attacks her for being a racist and a transphobe, then launches into her ministry where she's employed to say, what's your response to having this dreadful person who's a racist and a transphobe working for you? And how do you think that reflects on your patients? Such a sensitivity that gets elevated to the minister's response to the minister. Uh, um, and the ministry starts an inquiry into this uh, employee all on the basis of these anonymous tweets. It's unbelievable, is it not? I would have thought. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is this is not how a free society is supposed to operate, where individuals are allowed to operate according to their freedom of conscience, freedom of belief, and freedom of speech. And it, no. it, it's just drumming that, sa- banging that same drum of, of everyone getting in line and thinking the same way. And, and, and it's not good for our society. Now, I want to blow your trumpet more than you possibly could because of your uh, humility. 
But this uh, senior official, senior person, went off to media experts, went off to King's councils to get advice, and it was all basically fall on your sword. Unfortunately, and, that is the advice that so many in these situations are giving. If if you um, express enough mere culpas and self-flagellate and fall at the mercy of your persecutors, then perhaps they'll they'll not uh, become as aggressive as they otherwise would have. And we said nonsense. No, I want to come to the yet. free speech union. I want to. I want to. I want to praise you more than you're doing. So just <laughs> bear with me. So that was their advice, and of course. That's sensible advice if you're utterly on your own. Because on your own, all your friends, all your family, all your colleagues might be 100% in support of you. But if the media are out there labeling you a racist and a transphobe to the wider public, that's what you are. It then becomes an issue for the ministry. It then becomes an issue for the minister. And this person is on a hiding to nothing, mm. trying to plead their innocence when they're being pummeled in the public square. They're being flogged in the public square by the media. However, this is where you come in and the Free Speech Union, because this person did not know of the Free Speech Union, but contact was made and suddenly. He or she is not alone. This is the point of a union. Suddenly, and, and think about this, ladies and gentlemen, and dear, and dear listeners, because on her own, or on his own, this person was dead. I would believe they would lose their job and be stressed, stressed that you'd, you'd want to leave the country or goodness knows because the stress this puts you under because to be labelled racist and transphobic and hateful is a terrible thing in the public space. Terrible. And they know this. But this person, when approached by the Free Speech Union, suddenly isn't alone. She's got, or he's got, a group in their corner. It's extraordinary what happened next, Jonathan, and I commend you and, and to Stephen Franks. Tell me what you did. Thank you, Rodney. That, that really means a lot because really all things considered, we're not, we're not uh, especially clever. We're not uh, especially insightful uh, in comparison to anyone else. But, but what the Speech Union has been able to do is build together a coalition of everyday Kiwis who do not agree on anything else aside from the fact that uh, enforcing groupthink and silencing intellectual diversity robs us all. And so you're absolutely right. Our response relied on the thousands of Kiwis who took up our call. And uh, what we said was, it, in essence, what Jody uh, O'Callaghan, the, the, the press journalist in question, was doing was going to publicly out someone that was going to shame them into uh, rescinding their position. And we said, well, the, the the role of the press, the role of the fourth estate is to create um, more understanding and to uh, to deliver facts and but let other people decide. And that is not how this 
this journalist was operating. And, and media operate with such privilege. They have so many legal and social privileges that we expect them to operate with fairness and integrity. And that was not happening here. So we called on our members to contact the journalist in question, to contact her editor and say, who wins out of our team a, an anonymous account that that expresses opinions that you don't agree with? How does this serve the public interest at all? Is this really what media and journalism has become? Is this really what the role of the fourth estate here is? To, to, um, to shame dissenters into silence. And thousands of Kiwis contacted this journalist, contacted her editor, and said, really, shame on you for trying to bully this uh, this medical practitioner into not expressing views that you disapprove of. And uh, and you know what? I'll, I'll accept it, Rodney. It was quite a gratifying response. Within within a very short period of time, we had um, we had stuff back down. Uh, they said, well, look, we, we, won't, we won't run the story, but you need to call off the dogs. And we said, well, look, um, to be honest, we're not sure we can do that. These are people expressing their disapproval. And uh, I've had quite a few of our supporters contact me since and say, you know what? That was the day I cancelled my subscription with stuff. And um, you know what? We would rather not use uh, tactics that um, that require en masse um, uh, responses to, to to really put pressure on these people. We would much rather if these conversations were reasonable, were ration based, where we were where we were looking at at the role of these different institutions and considering what creates a good society. But in the absence of their willingness to actually engage in these conversations, we'll say, well, you know what? If you're going to play by the tactics of bullying people into silence, we will use our speech as well to call you out for failing to uh, adhere to the responsibilities as journalists that you have. And so uh, we, were, we were very thankful to the thousands of Kiwis who picked up our call. Indeed. And I think it made a bit of an impression down at the stuff room in Christchurch. I think they said, hang on a second. We don't usually get a backlash like this. We don't usually get people engaged in the way we're writing and what we're writing about and how we're calling people out. So I hope it left an impression in terms of what it is that the media should be spending its time doing. And it's not calling out dissenters and publicly shaming them. Now, I'm not a um, lily-livered um, nerd or anything, but I have to tell you, I was quite shocked by your call. It came from my former colleague, Stephen Franks, who I greatly admire. And I got this email to reply to stuff. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is next level, right? Because I'm being asked to join a pile-on on this journalist whose behavior I absolutely deplore and despise. And the stuff editor, whose likewise behavior I deplore and despise for all the reasons you've outlined. But it's next level to sort of deal to a bully by the bully, right? I understand it, but it caused me pause for thought, Jonathan. Did it cause a debate? At your in your hierarchy about the tactic, or was it no? This is what we do. No, absolutely, it did. And look, Rodney, I'm really glad that it caused you force for thought. I'm glad that this wasn't an obvious next step that you embraced straight away, because we need to be reserved in the way that we seek to use this pressure to 
it could turn into bullying of its own kind. And that and suppression. And suppression. That's, that's right. And the freedom of the press is absolutely crucial to a well-functioning democracy. So, so we absolutely keep that in mind. What we're saying, though, is it would be better if we could all resort to good faith debate and and a, and a clear understanding of the fact that the role of the media is to provide fact, to provide insight, and let others make up their mind. But if, if you, what we're saying is, if you're going to use your privileged platform and the and the and the incredible privileges that the media have in the law and in our society to to call out intellectual diversity, well, we we're not going to take that line down. We will push back, and and we you know we would doxing this woman per se. If we had her personal phone number. If we wanted to release that to our people and say, give her a call, we could have done that, but we didn't. We called on our people to respectfully remind her of her duties as a journalist to provide more insights, not to silence people. And, uh, and I think there is a way to characterize our actions as opposing the fourth estate. I don't think that's correct at all. What we were doing was reminding journalists what the function of the fourth estate truly is, what the role of journalism, the incredibly incredibly important role that they have, uh, how that is supposed to serve our society, not uh, constrain our society and silence those that are speaking within it. And so um, this, this is not the first... Uh, tool that we want to reach to. We would much yeah. rather have good faith conversations uh, that that are, that are that are respectful, but we will not take it lying down. And as a grassroots organisation, we will also use the power of 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 everyday people to stand up and push back if we have to. And and you use the word um, pushing back against the bully, Rodney. Um, I think that's exactly what it is. What I come to believe more and more in the role that we perform. And this is especially true as I go into meetings fairly regularly with employers where employees have asked me to join them to help stand up for their speech rights. These are bullies. And and I think we know from, from primary school, what happens when you're a bully? If you lie down and you, you let them take your lunch money, you just embolden them. But if you push back, and you, and, and you say that's not on, often they just fall over. And, and what I think has really emboldened so much of the sensorial nature of our conversation nowadays is the fact that people haven't stood up and said no. And that's what we're trying to do. Is, as you've said, to do that by yourself is an incredibly difficult thing. But if we can rally together 100,000 Kiwis who will say no, we agree on nothing else but the fact that we need to be allowed to speak what is true in our own minds and hearts, then together we are much stronger. And that's why the Free Speech Union has not lost an employment case yet. We, have, we haven't we have gone up to bat for an employee or, or you know, a, an advocacy case like this and, and not succeeded in preserving their right to speak because this is a freedom that Kiwis still do truly care about. But we feel more and more isolated against a small group of people who want to make us feel like we are unable to push back. But we can, and that's what I think the Free Speech Union is able to do. Well, good for you. Now, the peculiar thing about this is is that here we have a media that is typically left-leaning and typically was in favour of our freedoms and horrified, for example, in the 50s and 60s, any attempt to out a public figure for, say, being homosexual. But what we have here now is the same media 
outing people for their political views who are private citizens attempting to get their professional career destroyed and actually oftentimes succeeding because their political views disagree with that of stuff and their journalists. That's all this is. And that the political views of stuff and this journalist, in this instance at least, are the fringe views. I mean, this is extraordinary. Now tell me, have you had any sense or any response from stuff that they're going to tie ho and take it a bit careful next time? Or is this, oh, well, we lost that one, but here we are doing it all over again? Look, I don't think we've um, succeeded in achieving any sort of structural change. But at the very least, they have a moment where we gave them a bloody nose. And I think that will, you know, what we've found, uh, Rodney, is at um, in ministers' offices and in council meetings, we hear more and more of people going, but hang on a second, what is the free speech you're going to say about this? And I, I'm quite gratified by that, not because I have any desire for uh, for public officials or for media or for councillors to live in fear of just yet another interest group um, coming after them. That's not what I'm after at all. What I want them to do is reflect on the basic freedoms that Kiwis have and the fact that there are advocates for those freedoms out there. And this is something I, I really want to encourage your listeners to remember again. The government does not give us our freedoms. The government is there to ensure our freedoms. They are there to protect our freedoms. But we possess the right to free speech. We possess possess the right to freedom of conscience and freedom of belief because they are innate human rights. They are not given to us by the political structure that oversees us. It's not We don't have them simply because of the Bill of Rights Act. The Bill of Rights Act recognises what is innately our freedom and our liberty. And I think we get into real trouble as we orientate our minds and our society more and more towards dependency on the state. We start to think that it's the government that gives us this right to speak. And if the government wants, it can take it away. Nonsense. No legitimate government can infringe on the basic human rights of its citizens. And the foundational human rights of every liberal democratic society is the freedom to speak openly. And so I'm thrilled that uh, we're having an impact where, whether because we've convinced them, and that is the case for some, but probably for more, we've just given them a blood nose and reminded them that they need to take care, that they are going, hang on a second, what's the free speech angle here? And, uh, And if that means that there are fewer people that lose their jobs or fewer people that have a witch hunt come after them for thinking independently, I'm a happy man. You are like Winston Churchill after the Battle of Alamar. You know, it's um, the battle was won, the war was still to fight, and uh, but extremely well done. I'd just like to ask you, this is, I didn't cover this, but do you sense in this whole debate there has been a tilt, a big tilt, in questioning about this following the terror attack on Israel. And I ask this in this respect, that the same people that have been telling us that we can't have free speech, who have been saying that's an aggression, that's genocidal, just mis 
mispronouncing a pronoun, uh, misgendering someone. This is the worst thing that's happened uh, ever in the history of the world. Have stood by and said nothing about what has happened to Israel. Well, a, a, a couple worse, of comments there. Have said, attempted to justify it, and it seems to be the same group. Yes, exactly. And, and and I guess a few thoughts emerged there. First of all, I've never been compared to Winston Churchill before, and I'm quite gratified by that. So, you so are. Thank you. You're I'm, my Winston I'm, Churchill. I, I'm, I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of the day. Uh, another another thought is, I think you're absolutely right, that this, you know, um, in terms of, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how do we form culture? How do we change culture? Because we want to be effective and impactful in the work we're doing. And they often say that culture changes slowly until it changes very quickly. And often the work of cultural change is very progressive. It's incremental until all of a sudden you hit a tipping point and and, and then it feels like all of a sudden things are shifting. And I think that's what we've experienced over the past three or five years is that for the past 40 years, we've been slowly chipping away at some of the core values and beliefs that our society has been founded on. And then all of a sudden in three or five years, a few big events happened and we've felt like, there's been this major shift occur. And so that's why I think people are more aware of the stakes and, and what's at play than they have been previously. I don't necessarily get a sense that we are turning the tide yet, but I do get the sense that more and more Kiwis are becoming aware of the conflict that's at hand. And that's what's needed in order to start pushing back and to turn the tide. I think the point that you make in terms of the, the conflict that is going on in the Middle East right now is incredibly important, Rodney. The, the people who for years have told us that speech is violence now have nothing to say when violence is actually violence. And that is the great perversion and the great irony of our would-be censors. Censorship is necessarily a violent position to take. And today, it might only look like a grandma being punched in the face at Albert Park or something similar, some scuffles uh, on the streets. But before long, the fact that you are not allowed to speak freely, and we will stop you if you try, before long, that can't help but turn far more violent. And that is because free speech is not, you know, incitement to violence and violence is not simply a, speech, uh, a bridge too far for free speech. It is the opposite of free speech. Free speech is necessarily an anti-violent position because it says instead of with brute force and ignorance, we push ourselves on each other. Free speech insists that through dialogue and reason and exchange, perhaps sometimes bitter, cantankerous exchange, but nonetheless through words, we try and advance our positions. And so, um, absolutely, I think there are a lot of people who are opponents of the free speech union who over the past couple of weeks should be very glad that we have existed because there has been an incredible amount of what would have been considered hate speech, even, even what has bordered on incitement to violence. And we try and hold a very high standard for incitement to violence. Perhaps some of your listeners say our standard for incitement to violence is too high. I would say that uh, Kiwis should be allowed to speak in favour of the Hamas terrorist attacks. I have no problem whatsoever absolutely condemning them from my perspective. But they should be able to say that is a good thing. That is Well, it's helpful, level. isn't it? It's helpful to hear it. That's exactly right. It shows who the true bigots and the, and, and who the, the truly violent and vile are 
in our society. It shows us who we need to be watching and be careful of. That's right. And so we hold a very high standard for these things. And it is the very people who over the past three years have been saying we need stronger legislative responses to, quote, harmful speech, who would have been the first to fall afoul of them, I am certain, if uh, if they had been in place during this time. But I don't think that's a good thing. Silencing these people through the law would do nothing to address the horrific opinions that they hold. And yeah. so that's why we need to continue to allow them to speak and to use our counter-speak to challenge them. Absolutely, Jonathan. Well, well said. Well, here you go, listeners. What a wonderful win for all of New Zealand, uh, undertaken by Jonathan and the team, with the support of tens of thousands of New Zealanders. If you care about freedom, if you care about your rights, well, the first right you realise is to speak, to challenge, to argue. And that is under assault like in no time in our history. And standing between us and those that would shut us down is a group, the Free Speech Union. The beautiful thing about the Free Speech Union, as Jonathan explains, doesn't matter your political view. If you favour free speech, if you're prepared to just lean slightly in favour of free speech, then go to the Free Speech Union fsu.nz. I think I'm right in that, Jonathan. That's correct, yes. And subscribe, join up, donate, help. Because in terms of all the battles that we have, if our speech is no longer free, if we feel in any way encumbered because of our work or our obligations for speaking our mind, then we are losing. So thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for the Free Speech Union. Thank you for standing up for Momo St. John. Thank you for being our Winston Churchill at the Battle of Alaman and doing the start of turning the tide. It was an extraordinary achievement. And I salute you. I salute Stephen Franks. Um, I salute the person at the center of this. Because, my goodness, what a dreadful thing to have happen. And we know this is happening up and down the country. And so many of us now don't feel free to speak. Well, we've got the Free Speech Union. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. That was Jonathan Ayling. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. The Free Speech Union, here is an organization. You often join organizations just because you agree with them and you want to support them. But actually, they don't chalk up too many wins because um, it's hard extremely hard it's easy just to talk about things and have meetings about things and about complain things the free speech union is an organization that stands up for something very fun, fun, fundamental to us all but not only that they're having win after win after win and without doubt it's because of the caliber of jonathan and his team extraordinary people have come together from all walks of life across the political divide to defend our fundamental right, please sign up, join, subscribe, follow, help. We need it. Thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on radleycheck.radio. Remember, you can text me at 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. You're listening to Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. 
You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send us a text at 2057. Email us at inbox at radleycheck.radio. We love your messages. We love your texts. We love your emails. Now, regular slot. Politics Explained. Back to basics in the political sandpit with Tane Webster. Good morning, Tane. Good morning, Rodney. So, What yeah, questions you- have we got? Yeah, a few people have been asking when they were annoyed we didn't ask it last week, but what's the deal with why does it take so long for the special votes to be counted? Well, I'm not 100% sure, but what I do know is that we have, as best as I can determine it, an extremely secure system of voting and auditing the vote. So when I stood for Parliament, I would have scrutineers at every polling booth. And they would be judiciously marking off everyone as they came in to vote and checking that they were who they said they were and that they only got one ballot. And then they would oversee, the political parties are all entitled to a representative to oversee the counting of the votes. Now, you don't have a name attached, obviously, but they make sure each pile goes into the right pile and it's counted. So there's a great oversight. Now, I can imagine with the overseas vote, and more particularly the vote where people have voted outside their electorate, I assume, I don't know, but I assume that the political parties have their representatives overseeing that, and there's a great deal of care taken that you just haven't had Joe Bloggs turn up at some voting booth and say, oh, yeah, no, I I, I live in uh, I live in the Epsom electorate and uh, I just want to vote here today, and then they go back into another polling booth and say, oh, yeah, no, I, I live in so-and-so, and, you know. So they've got to check that everyone just gets to vote once and every person that votes is entitled to vote. And then, of course, they look at the actual vote paper to see that it's appropriate. So I imagine because they didn't vote in their electorate, uh, they've got to go against the whole role, you know. So I imagine it's it's physical, it's being properly audited, and I think in New Zealand properly done. At the end of every election, there's a select committee that does a review and looks at what could be done better. And again, all the political parties that are in Parliament get to have a say. People can make a submission to that committee about suggestions or what went wrong. So we have got, I think, And I believe, and I have no reason to doubt it, a very secure system. The one thing you do not want is postal voting. I think that's open to fraud. And I also would rather go back that you just vote on the one day unless you have a very good reason not to. And I think if we did that, we would actually get a quicker result. Having said that, it's coming up this Saturday, two weeks. How dumb is it, right? (laughs) The pollsters, the experts all said, oh, yes, Nationals won. No, we've got to wait for all the votes to come in, and then we've got to have the talks. So National didn't win. It's MMP. Only once have we had a political party get over 50% of the seats, and that was, of course, Labour in 2020. They didn't have to negotiate with anyone. They were in a very powerful position. Mr Luxon's got a talk to Mr Peters. He's got to talk to Mr. Seymour. And Mr. Seymour and Mr. Peters won't be rushing in to form a government. This is their best opportunity to pursue their policies and to pursue their political success. Mr. Luxon's in a hurry because he wants to look like he's a no-nonsense prime minister able to negotiate and get on with things. So it's going to take a while. But I think it's glorious. In the the meantime, 10 days without a government that can do much. 
Yeah, it's perfect, mm. right? Because no new taxes, no new regulation to we have limited government. Yeah. Imagine if we just did this for three years, just we had a spell. We said, oh, my spell, goodness, mate. there's so much coming your way. We're just going to take a breather and we're going to have three years of no government, just have everything tick along. And, of course, here's the funny thing. Government actually works without politicians. Every government department's just doing its thing. Can you imagine it? They're sort of spending money, doing their thing, writing regulations, making decisions, carrying on regardless, um, without the impediment of pesky politicians telling them what to do and messing things up or asking questions or the public coming to the local MP. It almost shows you that we do have this government apparatus that is independent and able to operate without ministers very easily. I know, by the way, this is a very interesting thing from my experience. When I was a minister, and it's the same for the prime minister, you take a while and then you work out what questions come to you to be answered and when your power is. And basically, on a day-to-day basis, sure, you can set policy, and if the department is of a mind, they might do it. If they're not of a mind, they'll block you, and everything will slow down. It won't happen. I mean, that happens. It's a reality. No matter how much you can jump up and down, nothing gets done. But what I noticed was 99.9% of all the decisions that they're taking are sort of obvious, and they just take them. And the only questions that come to you are the questions that don't have an answer, if you know what I mean. And when they come to you and they say, oh, Minister, we don't know what to do. It could be A, it could be B, or it could be C. And you look at it and you realize that there's no right answer. It's a bit of a coin toss. I don't know. But they come to the minister to get the minister to say, do A. And in a funny way. They know what they think would be best. No, they don't know. If they knew what was best, they'd have done it. Right? So your officials can make all the decisions if there's a clear answer. They just go away and do it. Right? But they use the politicians when it's stuck. Does that make sense? Like you're sitting there and you're thinking, um, if you're driving along the road, and you've got a clear map, you go left, you go right, and you're heading for your destination, turn right, turn right, left, and everything's clear, it's fine. And then you come to an unexpected fork in the road. Could go left, could go right. That's when the civil servants come rushing to the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, or the Minister of their department, say, hey, Minister, we need you to make a decision. Do we go left or do we go right? Oh, I don't know. Let's try right. Done. And off they go. And they carry on turning left, turning right, turning right, turning left, not in a political sense, but, you know, making their way through. And 99.9% of all the decisions they can take, it's only the ones that don't have an answer that they come to you. And they actually don't care whether you say A, B, or C. They just need to get going on their thing. It's a very instrumental type of thing, the bureaucracy. It was extraordinary to me. Officials can talk amongst themselves and decide that this is the best course of action and they'll go and take it. If they can't decide what is the best course of action, they'll ask the minister and the minister will flip a coin and away it goes. Ministers just sort of break up that little blockage in their thinking. Yeah, it's just goes awful... to show the whole, you can't expect change just from politicians then. Yeah. No, it's an, aw- it's an awful system, you see. And that's the crazy thing about why a market works so well because you're driven by a profit and a loss. And if you're not doing and producing something that people want at a price they can afford to pay, you'll go out of business. And if you are producing what people want 
at a price that they can afford, you'll make money and get bigger and provide for people. The bureaucracy and the government have no measure of success. None. They're just turning over. Their money just rolls in. They take it off people. They pass a law. There's no consequence for being right. There's no consequence for being wrong. Even there is no such thing, no thought in the bureaucracy of being right or being wrong. There's things like being caught out. There are things like um, <laughs> being on the front page of the newspaper. But they just carry on. And ultimately, of course, they've got the one thing that no one else in society has, and that is the, the legitimate use of force. They can make us all do things. No business can do that. But these government civil servants, even at a very low level, can make you jump. And in making you jump, they actually have no measure for their success other than the power that they wield. It's extraordinary. So I quite like it in a silly way that there's no parliament, but I wouldn't want it for too long because very quickly would emerge the full tyrannical force of our bureaucracy would be unleashed on us and we, we can go to complain to our MP and that's the little bit of check that we have. The only yeah. So there you go. I think we're going to be a few weeks yet, Tony. I could be wrong, but I think we're going to get the specials and then they're going to get talking. And um, I doubt that Mr. Peters or Mr. Seymour have given much away to Mr. Luxon. And I would imagine that even though the specials haven't been counted, Mr. Luxon would love to have a great story to tell us about how he's making steady progress and he's a great negotiator, but I think nothing is happening. Absolutely <laughs> nothing is happening. Isn't that funny? We voted and then changed the government, and there was nothing happened. And then you go, of course, Parliament's going to meet. They're going to meet for a couple Just of for days. a little bit and then go on a break. Go on a break. You know, middle of December, normally Parliament's gone. They might introduce some quick legislation and then go, and then they won't get back to Parliament till the end of January, early February. Oh, my goodness. What's the story with that? We'll have to do that on another politics. Explain why. Well, they used to have long breaks. It used to be like. It used to be longer. Uh, yes. The farmers would only sort of come along in winter when they weren't busy on the farm, and they would run the country. And of course, well, the yes, country, back then, though, they were doing a whole lot less in terms they of. They were doing a whole so. lot less. They weren't professionals. They weren't paid. as a, It was, was not a full-time job. Some of them would take days to get to Parliament in the old days before there was air travel. They'd do extraordinary trips to get to Wellington to cast a vote. Um, and and then it became, I think it was only in the 80s even, that it became like a full-time paid job. Um, and that's why they used to have so many perks to sort of try and trick people and make up their pay. Um and Parliament used to not sit for six months, I think. Extraordinary. I can't remember the exact details. But now they still have this extraordinary long summer. Why? Because it suits the politicians. They get to vote their salary, basically. They have appointed a higher salaries commission, but they get to appoint who gives them their pay and decides their pay. So then that's a good signal. And then they get to decide when they'll sit and when they'll work. I don't know what some of these list MPs that you've never heard of would do. I don't think they'd do an, an hour a day. I truly don't. I don't know what they'd do. It's an extraordinary system, and um, I guess it's a price you pay for for democracy. No, it doesn't have to be that because I think it's just we just once more people are aware of the problem, then they will demand better, and then the people yeah. 
will feel a little bit of pressure to do a bit better. So, but that uh, said, there'll be entire there'll be entire offices of bureaucracy that have not done a thing for years. Just <laughs> turned up, and they're probably the least dangerous ones because over there they're busy and they're causing trouble. Oh yeah. my goodness! I liked it when the Ministry of Health did nothing. It never ran the hospitals, of course, the things that matter. Never ran doctors. It just did health policy, and no one cared for it. Never did much, and it was perfect. It uh, consumed dollars and wrote papers and produced paperwork uh, and policy papers, and that was it. Of course, when they got a little bit of power with COVID huh, and they got busy working, uh, that's when the trouble started. There we go, Tane. We've got a bit of a ramble because we've got no government, no decisions. Glorious. Yeah, that good. was Politics Explained with Tane Webster. You're on Rattly Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us to text 2057. Email me, inbox at Oh, my goodness. I love this show. I love the listeners. And it's so fun talking politics at the moment, and it's going to get better. Trust me. Yep. Yep. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs, all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, we've got the giveaway of the 12 packs of seeds, heirloom seeds from Yates, plus the canvas tote bag. And we, you're going all going in for a draw. And we also said to improve your chances, send us a tip. Let me go through the tips. My tip is to listen to Wally. <laughs> Bought some of his product, and he was fantastic to talk to on the phone. Thanks, Leanne. Love the station. Best gardening tip, let some leafy greens go to seed. Self-sown volunteer plants are the best. Oh, that's a good one. Here we go. Eggshells around veggies to deter slugs. Hadn't heard of that one. We've had a pair of frogs move into our glass house. They're eating the bugs, so encourage frogs into your garden for natural pest control. Hmm. How do you encourage frogs? I don't know. Carrots are the best, so versatile. I love carrots myself. Carrots and cucumber tips. Start feeding tulips after they have flowered to ensure a flower next season. Very important to remove seed head and flower stalk, not the leaves. Feed twice before they die down. Always use long-handed tools where possible, rather than bending and twisting unnecessarily and injuring your spine. Fiona, that's very good advice. Don't be tempted to plant your summer vegetable plants out too early in Canterbury. You'll get caught with cold weather every time. Tracy. I sow my carrots on the thicker side, then pull out the baby carrots to eat and leave the now thinned out carrots to grow into beautiful carrots. My tip would be to use old silage bales as mulch in the gardens and in between the gardens to control weeds in the paths. Great tip. Uh, lazy potatoes, put your sprouted seed on the unweeded ground and cover with eight inches of mulch from modded compost and watch your spud grows. Cheers, Jane. Ah, well done. My tip is to use sheep's wool, complete with dags around all plants as a mulch. Also, a little in the hole under the veg 
works so well. Slags and snails don't seem to like it either. Pauline, nice. Compost, everything that is biodegradable. Nothing beats homemade compost. Here we go. Broccoli is just the best. Just built three raised beds. My tip, let your wife be in charge and take care of control. <laughs> Happiness, Paul. Absolutely. Men are only needed at certain times in the decision-making process, but they are the patriarchy, you know? Uh, seaweed on top of the soil and watch the cats walk right past. Oh, that's interesting. They hate it, the smell, texture. Uh, best tip, the majority of gardeners love to share, so don't be afraid to ask for a seedling or cutting of something that you'd like to grow yourself. Trudy. So this is this is a bit messed up, this uh interview from uh, this writing from Pam. I don't know why the text has gone wrong, but I can keep I can get the sense of it. It's from Pam who says when you when you're gardening, get your 10 and 8 year old children to help because uh they get to enjoy it and they learn self-sufficiency and how to look after themselves. So give them their own little seeds to plant. Good one, Pam. Good advice. Uh, Rodney, I always love to hear your voice when your show comes on. I enjoy hearing your enthusiasm for gardening, and I heard you asking for gardening tips. My best tip at the moment is to create in-garden composting and let the worms do the work. I live on Great Bear Island, so I've had to make do with containers I can glean from our recycling centre to make mine, but it would be a simple, it could be as simple as a 20-litre bucket with a lid, all sorts of go into each bin, kitchen scraps, fish frames, lawn clippings, cold ash from the fire, and best of all, all weeds pulled from the garden, go straight in the bin to be broken down by worms and carried back out into the soil. Gardening is all about taking ideas and making them work for you. I hope that gets some ideas from this. Thank you for all that you and the whole RCR crew do through the station. It's been a godsend for our sanity. Much love and respect. Simple tip, listen to RCR Radio Wally. <laughs> Professor Wally is the is the key. A wild west coaster showed me how to grow super large tomatoes and big black supportive grass. <laughs> That's a great idea. Uh, never planted tomatoes in the same spot consecutively. Great show today, Rodney. I love how you're investing in knowledge for the future, Helen. Rodney, carrots, but love lettuce also. Tip, show, sow leeks and carrots in the same row sowing more carrot than leek. The carrots will be ready before the leeks, which will act as protection against carrot fly. How interesting. Tricky choice about veggies because I love crisp lettuce, which and it is way easier and quicker to grow. But as you say, I'd have to say my favorite veg is carrot. As it's so sweet and crunchy, you can eat it in so many different ways. Raw, straight from the garden, grated, julienned in salad, stir-fried, roasted, boiled and warming soups. It's an amazing vegetable. I used to cut it in cherry blossom flower-shaped slices for my children's lunch boxes when they were little. So much yummier eating pretty flowers. Thanks for your fabulous show. I do enjoy your warmth and enthusiasm. Kind regards, Heidi. Hi, Rodney. Glyphosate-free carrots are the best and very hard to find these days from the enthusiastic lady with the extra exclamation marks. Oh, that's lovely. Well, I'm going to announce the winners shortly. Thank you for tuning in to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, rallycheck.radio. Remember, please send me text 2057, email inbox at rallycheck.radio. Your texts and emails are the best. We need to build the community. We do that by interacting, and I'm afraid at the moment it's just a little bit one way. 
but I want to involve you in the show as much as I can, and soon, hopefully, we'll be able to do that. Thank you for listening. Here on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, we have our winners. As they say, it wasn't easy, so we did a bit of a draw, and these are the ones that came out, and we loved everyone getting into contact with us. We loved everyone listening into the show, and it feels a bit hard, so we did it a little bit randomly. But I'm going to read the tips out that came with them uh, so that people will know who they are, the one, the prize, and we'll be in touch with, remember, the canvas bag and 12 packets of heirloom seeds courtesy of Yates. So first up is Fiona, and her tip was to always use long-handled tools where possible rather than little short ones to save your back. Next up, winner, Paul, and his tip was, oh, yeah, his tip was to let your wife be in charge and take care and control. That leads to happiness. And next up is Pam, and her tip was to involve your children in gardening so they learn about nature, have self-responsibility and self-sufficiency. So it was Pam, Paul, and Fiona. We will be in touch. Well done to the winners. Enjoy your seeds. Let us know how you get on. And thank you for participating, and thank you for listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on realitycheck.radio. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Favourite time now. Mailbag. Oh, I do love getting the feedback. Let me just get a slip here. Here we go. Oh, I can feel the love and I haven't even started. Stay on the soapbox. We have to protect our children. One option in the meantime, homeschooling. This is to do with uh, letting our kids be kids. Great soapbox. You're standing on, Rodney. Thank you. Well done, Penny. On behalf of us all, that was Penny Mayer. Remember, uh, let kids be kids. Hi, Rodney. My 10-year-old granddaughter and class of around 50 children are having a sexuality lesson today. 10 years old. Which includes doing a play on gender reversal and all the girls have to dress as boys and vice versa. I'm distraught as to what is happening to our innocent children. Kind regard, Karen. You know, it gets to a point where it's grooming and sort of paedophilia in a way, doesn't it, when they're sexualizing 10-year-old kids like this at school? I mean, what happens if we start saying they're paedophiles? Are you allowed to? But it's terrible. Hi, is the Body Safe program partially replacing mates and dates? Look, I don't know, but I think I read that somewhere. I know seven-year-olds are being involved in the sex education. Yes, they are. And, you know, they still believe in the tooth theory and they're being taught about sex. What's that primary program called? Uh, you guys are absolutely amazing. You're all changing lives. Thank you so much. Honestly, I can't keep up with what they're being called. Um but isn't it, oh, what's it called? It's got some funny relationship. REC, is that relationship? Sex education related relationship? I can't remember. I wonder if these books and the sexualization of our children is a wider plan for grooming for theirs who are paedophile, child sex traffic of those with money. You do have to wonder. There's something evil about 
taking the innocence of children, which is what this is. You do all that you can to protect your children, keep them young, keep them innocent, let them grow up, let them become adults in their own time, and you send them off to school, and their teachers, following the curriculum and putting policy ahead of people, as Penny Mayer would say, are robbing them of it. Disgusting. Not only grooming, but also to desensitize children that some of these sexualized ways are the norm. I agree. Rodney, it's just so bizarre how we went from explaining where do babies come from to our young children, which I'm sure some still don't quite understand, to now explaining there's 147 genders and dad can have a baby. Oh, my goodness. The insanity will fall over. They can't maintain this huge propaganda push. The more they push it, the more people are noticing. Something's off. Thanks for your wonderful chats. I enjoy your show and perspective very much. Love, Amanda. Thank you, Amanda. Enjoying the show this morning, uh, the answer's always been the same. Expose the people driving the issues. I agree. And there's some in the shadows. They're currently hiding in the public service and are protected by politicians who have been foisted on the public through the MMP system. It's no coincidence that occurred under the gayest parliament in New Zealand history. None whatsoever. Question, did I then actually have a baby? Everything about her was placed on ice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You wouldn't know. Oh, dear. My son, who is 23, decided that he was a woman early this year. As a father, I struggled to comprehend this. His mother sadly passed away in 2018. I'm so sorry. And to be honest, I'd happily trade places with her. Oh, my goodness me. My only advice I gave him was to see a counsellor or psychiatrist, and to get some help with his decision. He said he was so unhappy. I explained that it was a huge process, and at the end, what if he was still unhappy? Then what? He needs to address the reasons for being unhappy first. The healthcare workers were over the moon and eager to embark on this on his transition and only supported, pushed, and coerced the change. Thanks for the discussion, Rodney. Oh my goodness, I feel so sorry for that father. And his son. And of course to intervene and try and stop that has been made illegal by our parliament because that would be gay conversion my son who's 23 decided that he was a woman he's been unhappy for a while that's what it means ladies and gentlemen isn't it just this one person Uh, just this one person affected by all this propaganda. Just one. Too high a cost. Yes, this is a spiritual war. Thank you for your energy in this battle. 
Rodney, first sign to all this that I noticed pre-feminism was homo law reform. Try closing the door on that one, I dare you. We reap what we sow. I agree. It's a funny thing, isn't it? I didn't at the time. But we always knew as adults that there were homosexuals, but it was not in your face. It shouldn't be in your face. It shouldn't be in kids' faces. This idea that they jump up and down, these activists, not homosexuals, these activists jump up and down at every public event and get kids waving flags excited because it's pride. Something unhealthy about it. It's not a bad place for your sexual preferences to be in the closet. Uh, great interviews. Let kids be kids doesn't bring anything up except propaganda against the idea. Hmm, didn't quite follow that. Let the new education minister know. You bet. I feel so incredibly grateful to have heard Penny's beautiful words. That's Penny Mayor. Let kids be kids. Her courage is something else. I was almost in tears thinking how privileged we all are to be connected with such beautiful minds. Thank you so much. We are privileged and blessed to have Penny. Hi, Rodney, in tears listening to you talk with the wonderful Penny. I'm working mother who has a major guilt for not being able to be a stay-at-home mum. My children spend more time with their teachers than with me. And what they're potentially being taught without my knowledge scares me. Thank you for the resources. I will be looking into them all. P.S. You're a great interviewer, Rodney. You speak in question from the heart and thus get the answers that make a difference. Thank you. Well, thank you. And don't feel guilty because you love your kids. And that's the most important thing. You love and you care for your kids. And we don't have all the options and all the opportunities. None of us do. We're doing the best. And there's always trade-offs. But love with kids conquers everything, I believe. And caring for them and making them number one. Hi, Rodney. I'd just like to thank you for the interview you did with Penny Mayer. Listening to her gave me hope that there's a chance we could win against the evil in our world. Thanks again, Nick. Good morning, Wally. I planted my potatoes, as Joy suggested earlier this winter, as you suggested earlier this winter, and have just harvested new potatoes. Thank you, from Bonnie. Ah, oh, lovely. Garden Barn and Masterton are proud suppliers of many Woolies products, not the whole range, I must admit, but we display them proudly with all other products. Go you, the Garden Barn and Masterton. Take a look into what they're being taught in the life education program. I was shocked when my seven-year-old was telling me the other day. Mm, I thought it was all about tracks. Mm. Liked Good Morning. This is the site that Pinch and Penny mentioned. Uh, I, I got that confused. Uh, that's very valuable information regarding pollinated pumpkins, etc. with the flowers. I had given up. We'll try again. Thanks, Wally and Rodney. Rodney, contact Bostock Brothers. Get a little chalet on wheels, nicer than a coop. Oh, okay. Bostock Brothers, I'll Google them. I'm not a chicken expert, but we're preserving this spring's eggs in hydrated lime, so we'll have eggs all through the cold, shorter days of winter. Louise, thank you, Louise. Was told by our old fella that if you plant an inch of rhubarb just under all your brassicas, it stops the white butterfly eating them. Has Wally heard of this? Kirsty. With reference to Professor Elizabeth Rata, I've had experience in the last 12 months of tribal overreach. The elite are so cocky and overbearing that they dismissively proclaim that we don't talk to government departments or the heads. We just phone the minister and tell them what we want. I bet they do. Hi, Rodney. I was just listening to Simon Fleck about prepping. I was in Kaikoura when the 7.8 earthquake hit. My goodness. Nothing could prepare you for something like that. I thought I was 
going to die twice that night. Wow. Once during the earthquake and the after, when I was expecting a massive tsunami to hit. Ever since then, I keep a survival backpack in my car. I have good walking shoes and a feather puffer jacket, water, cash, food, a plastic sheet, headlamp, and batteries. Enough for me to survive for a few days if I have to walk home. At home, I'm fully prepped with enough to last us for several months. We have always been relatively self-sufficient at home, but the earthquake in Kaikoura made me realize you're not necessarily going to be at home when disaster strikes. I'd love to hear more from Simon. People need to be better prepared. Regards, Allah. That's amazing, Allah, isn't it? Because you don't think of that. You get everything prepared at home. But what if you're in town 10 k's away? You've got to get home somehow or further. Hi, Rodney. Have you got any ideas about what can be done about New Zealand and the signing of the WHO pandemic preparedness bill to possibly become law by December 1st? Well, if it's not been signed, lobby. Lobby the new government. Lobby your MPs. Tell them you don't want it. Email them. Hi, Rodney. Love your show. Loved what Penny shared. That was Penny Mayer, Kids Be Kids, and I viewed her video too. She's a true warrior. So she is. I love how you treat your guests and how you break information down. Keep being amazing, and may more people wake up. Many thanks, Emma. I'm gardening today for my happiness, but today for the first time you're joining me, and I'm loving it. Oh, that's so sweet. Must have earphones on. Huh. I just listened to Rodney's interview with Jack Marshall. Remember, he was a young university student, and I was pretty shocked. The situation is worse than I thought. I have a son in his final year at Vic, but he won't engage in these issues. He just wants to do his thing and blend in. Yeah, well, he's a kid. A huge disappointment, actually, given our stand on the gene theory rubbish. My husband is a scientist and researched so much, we both did, and that he was raised in a church-going Christian home. I've been very active fighting the gender ideology cult, but he doesn't want those conversations. I'm so thankful for guys like Jack who have the courage to stand strong and be grounded in reality. He'll be greatly blessed for his faith and convictions. Thanks again, Rodney, yet again, Ruth. Look, I'm sure your son is fine. But they do go through a period, don't they? We all do, I think, where you break away from home a little bit and disagree with your parents. I have to agree with the listener. I found your response heartening. We could all learn from you. Admitting our flaws is not always that bad as long as the critic is kind, as she was, and the recipient is humble. You won my respect with this response. Love you for it. Great lesson for us all. Oh, thank you. This is from Martine. Saw the comments about you. I really appreciate you as you're a genuine and not a professional interviewer. I really appreciated that you interviewed Liz Gunn, who's amazing. Why don't you ask her for some training? She is a warm and caring interviewer. Can really need people so well. All the best in hoping for unity in our community. Do you know, I've done a bit of training on different things, and sometimes when you get trained, you become fake, if you know what I mean. Because I imagine you get trained and then you get into your groove. I always remember trying to learn to write and I read every book I could on grammar and parts how to write you know all the rules of writing and I got so caught up in the rules that I became paralyzed and then I read a piece that said learn all the rules about writing and then forget them and sometimes I think about that with training too you sort of got to be trained and then you almost have to forget it to sort of find out your rhythm and your place. Does that make sense? 
Hi, Rodney. I'd just like to say I love your pensive, thoughtful comments on your show. Some people have complained that you interrupt or talk too much. I disagree. I love the way you talk slowly with purpose and emotion. It's really important to hear somebody speak that way and just wind things down a cog after everything we've been through. You make me feel calm and relaxed. I love your banter and quick wit. Some people just need to appreciate you for your kind regards, Diana. I love you, Diana. Dear Rodney, I love listening to the brave guest Penny Marie about her experience as a parent on the school board of trustees. She is fabulous. So she is wonderful. Have I have to agree with disagree with her about her negative comments about the old ACC funded mates and dates program? I have sat in on those classes and there was nothing in them about gender ideology. Oh, good to know. It's all based around the basic concept of consent, which is very important in safe sex, in my experience. Facilitators were very sensitive around sexual abuse victims, and it was run very carefully with nothing untoward in it all. They asked the student questions in an anonymous way, and they ensured that the school counsellor was present to help with any fallout if necessary. I disagree with your guest because I think this program was probably canned in favour of the current push for more gender ideology-focused programs like Inside Out. Mates and Dates was gentle and professional and also very necessary in the communities where sexual abuse is rampant. Much love, Libby. Well, thank you for that, Libby. Hello and thank you, Rodney, for analysing the analysis of Tova O'Brien on the election 2023. She, of course, would know about the electoral system and wants to say with all her MSM colleagues, that the enemy is the Nats, of course she does. She's therefore saying they are the government and that enables her to concentrate on them since she wants to blame them in the next few weeks and months and years for all that is going on in the country. Of course she does. This even though the Nats will have to form a coalition, of course not be able to keep track of and certainly not control the entire country. Unless they establish some sort of secret police, they'll not know what is going on and will with much failure respond to daily events one at a time and there will be many crises. The Greens, I call Greens, G-R-N-S, have already made very clear that they will deeply disrupt all that the Nats attempt to do. ACT will not be a great help, but will try largely to do their own thing as they attempt to increase the likelihood of frail people getting access to euthanasia. But I stray from the point. Miss Tova knows exactly what she's doing because she wants a job on live radio and mistakenly thinks this sort of talk will aid her in that direction. Thank you for telling us about Tova's. Otherwise, I would never have read anything about what she thinks. Laugh out loud. Bye for now, Rodney, and best wishes, Ray. Thank you, Ray. Great, great, great piece. Yes, I do agree with the suggestion criticism sent to you, Rodney, and I have similar thoughts about listening to the interview with Erica Harvey. You were listening and not interrupting, but we're all wrapped listening to her story. Rodney, you're lovely, and I liked your voice, but yeah, you often have a conversation rather than an interview. So maybe you just need to decide beforehand which one you're doing. You could do with practicing the interview style. Keep your comments to clarifying or summarizing what was said. Maybe you could save up your stories and after the interview is gone, you could tell us then. We like to hear from you, but it can interrupt the flow for the interviewer a bit, interviewee a bit. All the best, Rodney. You're doing great. Despite the wiggle room for improvement, I like your interviews. Oh, well, I love the comments, right? And how could we get better if we didn't hear some critique? And I'm up front. Hi, Rodney. I'm enjoying the station generally, in your section particularly. The long format interviews where you ask a question, then shut up is wonderful. And I've learned all sorts of things about some of the aspiring politicians you have interviewed. Thank you. On vaccines, it occurs to me that there'll inevitably be much scrutiny placed on all of them. People will ask things like, are any safe in absolute terms, as opposed to similarly to the previous one, etc.? Where is the evidence that immune-compromised folk 
have any prospect at all of being able to assimilate any vaccine. That is mountain immune response. I'm comp- I have with a compromised immune system, which in theory then gives the opportunity for cellular memory, etc., so that you can beat the virus up next time you come across it. Plenty more questions too. Another news though, please feel free to contact me if you're going to be in Wanaka sometime at a cup of meal time, as I'd love to meet you sometime. Meantime, thanks for you and your team for your efforts, Graham. Thank you, Graham. That would be lovely. Well done for exposing this abhorrent behavior. I'm sure that would be the sexualization of kids. Hi, Rodney. I'm listening to your interview with Penny. What a wonderful interview. And yes, Penny is a lovely woman, really inspiring. I hope you saw the backdrop behind her. It was one of my RCR posters. I had a wee aha moment when you said about not being able to walk with people who are sexualizing our babies or not being able to talk with them, maybe. I totally agree that this is absolutely evil. No, I think I said I couldn't talk to them. I don't know what to say. But my aha moment was about climate change. This is also part of the brainwashing from school level. You hear all the time. Chris Luxon, for instance, I believe in climate change. While they are annoying much of the science, is this because we have lost our number eight mentality? Because New Zealanders are connected to our agricultural, aren't connected to our agricultural past. For instance, we now have generations who truly believe that food originates in the supermarket. Therefore, they have a complete disconnect with where our food comes from and are easily led into the belief that cows can be creating man-made climate change. I now think they're all part of the bigger gender of control, gender identity, climate change, etc., etc. Basically, all the topics that the legacy media call conspiracies. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Diana. Dear Rodney, I do love your chats with Wally, and this week's one was a doozy. I nearly died laughing at the Pufta comment. Um, that was Wally, I'm sure. Chickens are easy and so satisfying. I love my wee band of six chooks and a rooster. We were also able to have one, and his job is to protect the hens from hawks and such like. Only five are laying, but I can't cull them either. The only problem I've had so far is mites, but for me, regular spraying of the crevices in the chook house with permoxin has got rid of them. Mine are completely free range and they can rid themselves of mites by dust bathing. Once you get up and running with some chooks, you should join Chicken Chat New Zealand if you're a Facebook user. Very helpful, informative group. Regards, Bronwyn. Thank you, Bronwyn. In my 61 years, there have been politicians who have annoyed me, but Adine was next level. I hate her. Yep. I hear you. For Mike, hi Rodney, that was a real laugh out loud moment, you telling us about the mainstream Tova idiot, explaining how we have an unseen, we have an unseen by the entire country new government arrive on Saturday. I absolutely love the way you explained it and the subtle not way you made her out. I know it is how I know it is how I perceive the explanation. I believe I've taken it the correct way, and I know we wouldn't want to hurt those precious feelings. Dear God, we really do have to get rid of these idiots in the mainstream media. Cheers, Mike from Foxton, but staying in Wainuiamata for a spell. Good for you, Mike. Thank you. The gardening is definitely a great thing to rebalance. All the best, Kevin. Hi, Rodney. A big thank you for the program. It was mint today and yesterday. Thanks, RCR and Rodney, for the wonderful interview with the inspirational Penny Mayer. Excellent. I was cheering you both on a while on a long drive for Mary. Hi, Rodney. Incredible interview with the courageous Penny and her fronting up to the school board. That was so helpful to understand the process that parents can use to address concerns of any description on their school boards. God bless her for confronting and bringing to light the attack on our kids, the Inside Out Project is. This interview, an absolute must listen for any parent with a kid in any school in New Zealand. Keep up the great work, Dalwin. Thank you, Dalwin. 
Thank you, Rodney, for your wonderful interviews. Excellent discussion with Elizabeth Rada and also with Penny Mayer. I agree with you both. My thoughts entirely. And as a grandmother, I'm appalled at what my grandchildren are being taught. I'm joining the fight. Good for you, June. Katrina, what an amazing young man you interviewed for Massey. It restored my faith that there are still some young ones with maturity and morals. He should be very proud of himself for holding his head high and navigating this crazy world. Please tell him to continue no matter what. Young ones like this are our future, and there are some following him that need to know they're not alone. Nice. Thank you, Katrina. Chris. Hi, Rodney. I've just finished listening to Penny Mayer. Where do you get these people from? What a great woman. We need more like her. You did a very good job of interviewing her. RCR has so many wonderful speakers out there. Penny makes David Seymour's ignorance of the education agenda reveal his true colours. What an absolute, oops, bad word from Chris. I mostly liked listening to Replay Radio last night with Rodney Hyde's gardening guest, Kate Hillier. However, I was shocked to hear the frequent use of the word bugger and bloody in the interview. In my book, that is simply not acceptable. You know what? I agree. I and my family do not want to hear this language and would not want any children listening to her. I highly recommend that your guests be reminded that you are bringing them into your listeners' homes and therefore they are expected to behave themselves. If we cannot trust you to bring guests with a civil tongue in their mouths, then we'll be loath to have RCR on. I know that uncouth people can't control them, can control themselves. We have a family friend who never swore in front of my mother, but now that she has passed away, his speech is liberally peppered with expletives when he visits. It is offensive and an insult to my mother's memory. Likewise, the fact that RCR accepts such abhorrent, abhorrent language does not reflect kindly upon the hosts and the management. Now, I agree. I, I don't like bad language on being broadcast into people's homes. It's um, you're a guest. So I'll keep an eye on that. I apologize. I'm probably so used to bad language, I don't notice it. Uh, attention, Rodney Hyde. Uh, would you please ask gardening guru Wally, how do we save our garlic and chives and onions from a mass influx of small black aphids? We have tried all sorts of things, not commercial stuff. We're trying to grow all organic fruit and veggies. It looks like we've lost our garlic again this year. Love, RCR. Best regards, Phil and Barbara. I'll send it on to Wally immediately. Willie Jackson is 30% Chinese, as HRT probably is to Willie. Isn't Willie? I remember telling Willie Jackson, I said, it must be sad to be you. And he says, why is that? And I said, well, the only thing or the best thing or the only thing that seems to matter to you is that you were born Maori. Nothing that you've done, nothing that you've become, nothing that you've achieved, nothing you've tried to do good, just that you were born Maori. Seems to be all that matters to you, Willie. How sad is that? And that the only thing that matters to you about me is that I was born non-married. What sort of crazy, messed up attitude to human beings is that? Wonderful interview, Rodney, with a very impressive young man. Thank you so much from Paul. Rodney, all Leah Thomas's records, oh, have been removed from the Swimming Hall of Fame in America. John, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Uh, remember Leah Thomas? She was the big overgrown male swimmer who was a mediocre male swimmer. Said he was a woman, got to swim against the woman, cleaned up, stood on the podium in first place, this hulking man, proud of himself, when he should have been utterly ashamed and embarrassed and actually should have been arrested for being in the women's changing rooms. There you have it. Uh, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. Please send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. 
here on Rally Check Radio. Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Been a great show. I love the story of the 17-year-old. Never been to a doctor. Cuts his foot, dripping blood. Rings, Mum. Think I need stitches. Mum says, let the blood flow, clean out the wound, and then tomorrow I go to the doctor. Goes to the doctor. Doctor says, oh, have you up to date with your vaccines? Nope. Oh, we're going to need to give you some jabs, at least for tetanus. Nope. I'm just here, doctor, to get the stitches in. Okay. Good on the doctor. Okay, I'm just going to give you a jab to give you a local anesthetic. No, I'm okay with pain. Just stitch it up, doctor. First time he'd ever been to a doctor. Imagine raising a kid like that. What an achievement. Sarah Farrant, who walks the talk. My goodness. And how wonderful was it that New Zealanders mobilised to defend someone we don't know so we wouldn't get to know them, so that they could choose to post their views on X and not have a stuffed journalist destroy them by attacking them in the public square, labelling them transphobe and racist, demanding what has the health system got, a transphobe and a racist. When they were a transphobe, they're not a racist. They're actually the exact opposite of these terrible epithets that these journalists throw around and destroy people for no good purpose, simply for having an opinion and an argument that they don't agree with. That's how it works nowadays. Great to have the mailbag. Great to have the guiding tips. Great to have the winners. It's been lovely to have you along. Hope you've enjoyed the show half as much as I've enjoyed it. Hope you've enjoyed my company half as much as I've enjoyed yours. Remember, send me a text for 2057. Email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Rally Check Radio. Talk next week. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.